Midwest baby, Chi-town lately. His name is Mason M. Glasses on, podcast smile. Kisses for his friends. But Noah Marger, friend and fellow podcaster, paddles on his ass every week, cheek to cheek. Mace McGuire in my hands. He's a freak, not in the sheets. Somehow Noah perseveres. Looking back, I just laugh. I can't believe the show exists. Well, Mason, man, oh man. It's our last stand With the last guest who was the first Looking on I sing my songs Of Joker's tricks and Stewie Griffin feels so real potting here about underrated albums and even some movies when I say doing farting hold me closer Mace McGuire count us down to do recording to Lois We'll watch some eps and hit the hay Hold me closer Mace McGuire Count us down to do recording Lay me down right next to Lois We'll watch the maps and hit the hay. And that's all we're going to do. <laughs> that's, that's all we're going to do of that one because uh, it is okay. six and a half minutes long and the rest of the song, it is just the same thing over and over again. And that would suck. Elton John, yeah, Elton John deserves that time uh, that you give him when you hear Tiny Dancer. Noah Marger and his parody songs do not, do not quite. Uh, but this was why that was lovely. Why that was did a you lovely... say that? Because uh, I feel like being mean today. I'm very sorry. That was a mean thing. For that me wasn't. To say. That was actually not cool. I'm sorry. What the fuck, dude? Come on. I, I didn't really mean gonna that. Start, I meant that to come out funnier like than that? it did. Come on now. I uh, man, now I'm feel now I feel like such an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's right. it's good to be back in the podcast studio. That's all I got to say. All right. I almost believed that when you said it, too. Uh, <laughs> welcome back to It's On The List. This is a show about underrated albums, movies, and a whole lot more. I yeah. am the funny talking baby. Baby. Funny talking baby. <laughs> Noah Marger. <laughs> With me as always, my mean co-host, apparently. Yeah. Mason yeah. M. Mason, what the fuck? Why uh, do you have sand all the way up your you-know-what right now? Um, That's a very good question. I don't know. I've been feeling pretty good recently. Uh, So I don't know where this this guy's coming from. <laughs> where, the fuck, where the fuck did this guy get off and trade places with the Mason that I know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I'm very sorry. I shouldn't okay. have. I shouldn't have been. That I'm just giving you a hard time because you all because you deserve it. <laughs> yeah. Be, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all good. All right. Uh, I don't know. I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I am. Uh, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I guess that's what we'll say. I'm hanging in there, baby. I'm like the cat on that poster that's just like just hanging there, baby. And I always thought yeah. those were funny. And I'll just say mm-hmm. that I always thought those were really funny. Did you? I don't think we had that specific uh, poster growing up. Uh, I don't remember. Um, I don't think I had that specific poster in a classroom growing up is what I was trying to say. What I think, though, is that you should try to find a T-shirt with that with that poster on it. That would be so around. fucking good, dude. That would be so good. I yeah. you probably what you probably loved, though, what you probably cracked up at openly, like even during moments where you're supposed mm. to be quiet is the dogs playing poker. <laughs> you probably thought the dogs playing poker was like laugh out loud material. Just in the yeah, just in the middle of a of a math test, just like walking up to the teacher to ask her a question, and be like, "Can dogs like did they find real dogs to do that? Like, what's how do they pull? It's that a off? painting. How do they pull that off? I know it's okay. So it's a painting, but like, did did they just like sit still for a really long time? <laughs> do you think he did that? All do you think he traced that? <laughs> do, you think, do you think he did a tracing of that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I actually yeah. do think that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it cold? Is it still cold there in Chicago? You know what? Today was re- today was ki- today was kind of nice with it, even though it was uh, snowy and uh, not snowy, uh, windy, folks. It is Sunday, February twentieth, twenty twenty one. And the weather no, in it's Chicago not. It's not today. 2021, it's 2022, my man. 2069. <laughs> the weather right now in Chicago is 48 degrees. That's a 48 new degrees. high. Yes, and it is windy, uh, and I am, it looks like it's going to be a nice evening, which is uh, a change of pace. I can't wait to get my little evening walks back. It's going to be huge for you. It's going to be huge for me. It's going to be one of those moments where you're like, or you can play back in the New York groove by Ace Freely and you can say, I'm back. In the Chicago groove. I almost did that. When I moved back to LA, I almost wrote on my Instagram post, I'm back in the New York groove, but I didn't do that. Mm, You should have done it. Let's get the guest in. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck this. Fuck all this shit. All right, here we go. (laughs) He's been waiting patiently. Our guest today. He's a filmmaker whose work includes Thicker Than Water, Our Way to Fall, and even an episode of the Instagram TV series, What's Up North? He was the mm-hmm. first official guest on the pod because we don't count 
uh, Carter because Carter tricked us because we thought he was going to be here for every single episode. Shame on you. <laughs> Shame on you, Carter Moon. Your dirty, trick, your dirty trickster ways. Fuck you. <laughs> it's, we're almost done with the show. We have five. We have four episodes left out of this. So I'm going to say it. Fuck you for not being here for every single episode. I'm finally glad to get that off my chest. So this guy God is damn, the first dude. official guest that we've ever had on the show. And now he is our last. That's right. This is the last guest of this version of whatever this fucking podcast is. On, it's on the list. Please welcome back once again to the show, Dustin Titcomb. Dustin, what's up? Hey, everybody. Long time emailer, first time listener. Glad to be back. That's actually a good point. We need to address something kind of controversial right off the top. You are banned yeah. from the show, uh, and we are lifting your ban for 24 hours so that you can come be a guest on the show. Unshun. Yeah. For he's the coming part. in. Yeah, he's 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 he hacked into the uh, Zoom call here from a pirate from a undisclosed location uh, on a pirate Zoom feed. We'll just say uh, this. So he, he's in the same spot yeah. as Edward Snowden is <laughs> right now. <laughs> Him and Edward Snowden. That's the and you guys are yeah. pitching a TV series to True TV called My Life with Snowden, right? Yeah, that's actually my plug for the episode. We can get that over at the beginning <laughs> instead of the end. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Go ahead mm-hmm. and plug away. Go go plug it. Plug it right now. Yeah, so my pal Ed and I have been working on this for a long time, and uh, we think that especially with the climate in Europe right now, it's kind of a necessity. Uh, Sure. Could could end up making peace, actually. Uh, So make sure to check that out on Showtime uh, and Paramount Plus, because everybody has those. Yeah, those Uh, are going to be dropping sometime within the year. Okay. Dustin, may I make one suggestion to your pitch here? Uh, Instead of calling it My Life with Snowden, why don't we call it My Snowden Life? Make it cleaner. That is Mason. I, I rarely say this to you. That was beautiful. <laughs> I rarely say things like that to you. That was a beautiful thing that you just did to my friend. I'm glad and that you know your what? friendship has been repaired after the rocky start to this episode. <laughs> yeah, after the fucking avalanche that Mason caused right away. We've some I somehow have pulled it All back. the credit is deserved for Noah. <laughs> yeah. Just like when I bequeathed him the title of Quirked Up White Boy Go To With The Sauce. And the, I'm doing yes, another mitzvah. He's a generous... Yes, he is a ge- he is a generous host. He is a generous god. He is Noah is the 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 uh, he's Jupiter. He's a gift giving uh, podcast co host, and I uh, am uh, that satellite mortal. that is far away from Earth, and you can't. <laughs> and lucky he's a family guy. I'll just say it. Lucky he's a and family luckily he's guy. a family guy. Lucky he's a family guy. Dustin for real. Dustin. 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 Uh, Dustin. Dustin. Tustin, Tustin, California. Tuck, Tust, tucked in. <laughs> Did you Tustin know that that was a place, come. Mason, in, in Orange County, Tustin, Tustin, California? It is. I think I may have seen it on like a a a highway sign. You would see it, it on the five, familiar, and like, you would drive right by. by it and say, "What a shitty place that must be to live." <laughs> mm. Except that is where the Taco Bell is that they showed in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Fun fact. Oh, they got. That old, they got an old Taco Bell. Very cool. Yeah, that's where that is. I believe that because they were filming that. Well, I, D- Justin is somewhat similar to you, Mason, that he's like eons older than I am, even though we're friends. Um, and yeah. so when Dustin was already graduated from school, but I was still in school, at one point they were filming Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in Orange County, which 
never fucking happens for major movies, especially like cool movies like a Tarantino movie. And they were like, where are they mm. filming? Like, no one knows what the hell's going on. And then all of a sudden, one day I looked it up, and they just came down to shoot the fucking old Taco Bell. And that was it. <laughs> and then they were done. And probably took them maybe three hours at most. And then they drove it on back up to L.A. Well, and those are inserts, too, in the movie, like uh, Chili John's. Yeah. Wink, wink. Wink, wink. Okay. Let's talk about it, Dustin. Let's talk about it. That's your favorite restaurant in L.A. What do you it like is. about it and so I much? Just, I think everybody should know... If you end up going to Chili John's, it is not too late to order the spaghetti. <laughs> I found that out the hard way. Um, something bad happened at Chili John's in a, in a major way. Uh, you have to get the chili because it's Chili John's, but you can get the spaghetti with the chili as well, sort of a staple. I wasn't feeling like uh, loading up on that <laughs> much stuff in the moment. <laughs> so I said, I, just, I won't take the spaghetti. I'll just take the chili. But I was hungry still, and so I desperately looked at the waiter. In that moment. And I said, is it too late to get the spaghetti? Like, really nervously, because I was so hungry and I still wanted the spaghetti. And to Dustin, um, he's never going to let me live that down, personally. So It was one of the funniest things that I've ever experienced. <laughs> it sucks now, though. It, su- it sucks. What is it? Probably almost two and a half years later. Well, yeah. I mean, they have a, they have a banner uh, out front, right above the front door. It says, yes, we're open. But sometimes they're actually not. And there's a smaller closed sign in the window. So they're sort of sending out mixed signals, which I think is kind of on brand for them. Yeah, because sometimes mm. the food is good as fuck and sometimes it sucks shit. Sorry. Sorry, Chili Johns. Sorry. I know we're sponsored by them, but I'm. we can't be bought in that way. You know what I mean? I don't know what you mean. Can you elaborate? Oh, okay. Yeah, no worries. No, we just, we don't take, spon- we don't eat, we're, we're a free podcast. <laughs> we don't want to, we don't want to make a red cent off this thing. Oh, so. I've I've yeah. always been waiting for my residuals from the previous two episodes, but I guess those are never coming. Yeah, well, we will be taking that into consideration when Mason and I do collect at the end of the year, whatever we do make from this. We will yeah. be thinking about giving our guests some, some small morsel of what we collect from this. And not only that, uh, we do have to um, uh, uh, just sort of figure out how we're going to divide the estate in other ways. You know, like who is going to get the Zoom password? Uh, I'm assuming the email rights stay with you. That well, that's yes, kind of what I figured. Uh, is since I t- pay for the Zoom, figured I was going to get the Zoom password, and since you created the free email account that you wouldn't give me the password to, figured maybe you. I the gave password. you the password. It was just some bullshit auto-generated something <laughs> or other, sucks. and it uh, it sucks. Speaking of the email, though. Speaking of the email, though. Right. Let's open the email. I sent another email. No, you did no. not because we have we have, we have DDoSed you. <laughs> we have DDoSed you and Snowden. Mercifully, we got a good email this week, actually. Thank fucking from God. Our, yeah, from friend, former guest, Ian Campbell. So shouts out to Chef Ian Campbell. Thank you very much for the good email this week. This is a model email, actually. This is a model email. Take note. Dustin and Ryan, take note of what this email looks and sounds like. He writes... Hey, Mason and Noah, after listening to last week's at the time writing episode of DJ Sabrina on DJ Sabrina, the teenage DJ and love exposure, I got real hung up on an idea that uh, came up, I think, from Noah, that albums frequently would be better ending on the second to last song rather than the last song. That wasn't Noah thought. 
Uh, that was a Noah original. It was. Uh, it stuck with me because I had the exact same feeling listening to Laurel Hell, Mitski's newest album, which has this beautiful, simple, sad second-to-last track and then pivots into a groovy thing to end it. I know that dramatic shift is on some level part of the larger metaphor she's painting about her relationship to the music industry and music making in general. But the second track would have been a much stronger ending, which got me thinking of other albums with a similar problem. So my questions to you both, and I guess Dustin, because he's here too. Can you think of other examples that would have cut it and ran, excuse me, that that should have cut it and ran on the penultimate track, uh, and better yet, albums that do make a meal of their final song and end with a big finish? What is the perfect album ending? Thanks for the pod as always. Best, Ian. Thank you, Ian. That Um, great email. Unbelievably good email. email. It was an email so good that I had to share it with Noah ahead of time, not just because it was so good, but because there's a lot. It's a thinking question. Absolutely. Uh, And I also want to come out in front and just say that I uh, missold the prompt and kind of (laughs) gave initially. uh, I missed the I, I was so fixated on the perfect album ending question that I missed the other two prompts there. Which is what are other albums that don't that would probably be better off on their penultimate track, uh, and then which are ones that are just like super big and bombastic. Uh, but we got that rectified thankfully with enough time here. Um, I am curious to start with Chef Dustin. He also got this prompt here. If he had any thoughts on the topic at hand, yeah. Well, thank you to my friend Ian for sending that great email. I'll definitely take notes. Uh, as far as the <laughs> remaining four episodes uh, and how I should carefully craft uh, these great, great it questions. Won't be com- it won't be coming in. We've blocked your IP address. No worries. Oh, right. Okay. I'll have to create a new yeah. email because uh, yeah, that's perfect. really easy to do, as you all know. Um, <laughs> yeah, no worries. So first thing that comes to mind, honestly, is uh, Abbey Road because yeah, that's one of the most mm-hmm. famous, greatest albums ever made. It's the last album the Beatles recorded together. And the Abbey Road medley uh, on side two, collection of songs that weave in and out of each other, culminating in a, a track literally called The End. What better way for the Beatles to go out with, but with a song called The End? Beautiful harmonies, cascading finish, last line. What is the last line? Uh, the love you make is equal to the love you take. Yes. Or, and in yeah. the end... The love, love you make, make is equal to the love you take. The love you take is equal to the love you make. That's what it is. It's and one And <laughs> beautiful finish. And then you think it's over. You think, wow, that's it. Just kidding. Here's 30 seconds of Paul McCartney singing and playing acoustic guitar. A little song about the Queen of England. It's called Her Majesty. The first pressing in the UK on vinyl didn't even have that listed on the back cover. It just capped it off at the end. And so in some ways, you could think of it as a bit of a hidden track. That quickly, for whatever reason, was changed, though. And ever since then, Her Majesty has always been listed uh, as the very last track. But again, it's like 30 seconds, very inconsequential. uh, And again, like the way that the end that finishes, you kind of think of that as the end of the album, the end of their career. But technically... Her Majesty is the last track. And yeah. sort of somewhat different but kind of familiar is two of Mac DeMarco's albums, uh, Salad Days and another one. The last tracks on each are just him doing a little instrumental and then the very last thing before the album is 
completely over. In Salad Days, he gives out his phone number. And in another one, he just gives out his address and says, Stop on by. I'll make you a cup of coffee. Thanks for listening. Okay, see ya. Sounds like Mac DeMarco to me. (laughs) But I guess it's like, what are you looking for out of a closing track? I mean, this is, again, pretty fucking different, but who puts on Mortal Man from To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar just on its own, you know? You listen to that album from start to finish, and that ending is, it sneaks up on you, it's a gut punch, but it's also not the track that people are going to be talking about uh, compared to All Right uh, or These Walls. You know, it's it's very much supposed to be where it is. It was deliberately placed, but it's not a track that's going to get played on its own. It's a great point. Uh, also, I believe that Her Majesty is the Guinness World Record holder for shortest song of all time. Actually. Actually. That can't be. What? I think that's true. I think I think I just read that. <laughs> I think I just read that online. Well, Noah has every this. single Guinness Book of <laughs> World Record on a shelf in his apartment. <laughs> I do, and I look at them every single day. <laughs> I open them up and I read you one page. You think Paul McCartney will play? You think Paul McCartney will play Her Majesty at the Queen's funeral? Yeah, I think so. It depends on which one of them dies first. <laughs> He'll play it at both. <laughs> he wants to give them equal opportunity. He'll play them both. He goes, and now, Her Majesty and the Beatles. And then the Beatles will come back out. <laughs> and George and Paul will come back out and he'll go, these are my buddies, George. Paul or his, and then he'll say Paul and he'll go, that's me. Just kidding. It's Joan. <laughs> it's Joan instead. So you're right though, Dustin. <laughs> you're right about mortal man. It's a great point. And uh, I'm going to be a hundred percent open and honest here. Mason told us the prompt only half the prompt. And then he showed us the full mm-hmm. prompt. And I just did not have enough time in my weekend based on when we got it to really sit down and think, well, what's a what's a great penultimate track that should have been the final track? But I did too write down Abbey Road as like, you know, great final whatevers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Her Majesty is a little ha-ha at the end. But, so I don't really have a good answer for the first part of the prompt. But in terms of final coming out, you know, with a bang, those album closers, another Beatles album, A Day in the Life, off Sgt. Pepper's, the great way yep. to fucking close an album. Absolutely great. We also have truly, and I'm not just saying this because I love, love, love this album. It truly is a great way to get out of the album. But the ending track from Weezer's debut album, Only in Dreams, is a great ender to that album. It's very unlike anything else on that album. And it really, it's like the longest song. It like pushes the album like over the 30 minute mark, I think. I don't think it would even be like that long without that song. And it's this, <coughs> excuse me, like seven and a half, eight minute, just like dreamlike. Comp- composition you're just like swaying back and forth the guitars come in it's so nice i think that's a great ending to an album and uh two-headed boy by neutral new excuse me, two-headed boy part two by neutral milk hotel i think is like the perfect way to end that album that's my favorite song off that one uh although it is technically there is a hidden track afterwards famous last words from welcome to the black parade could go for either uh, if you want to count that as the penultimate track or if you want to count that as the as the sort of final stand there, I guess that kind of answers that question in, in twofold. Uh, but then other ones, Here Comes a Regular from Tim by The Replacements, 
Jungle Land from Born to Run, uh, and New York I Love You But You're Bringing Me Down from Sound of Silver by LCD Sound System. And there's others that I could have mentioned because I've heard them in their single form, but I haven't heard them within the context of the album. So I just abstained from writing down anything that I, yeah, I love that song, but I haven't heard it within the context of the album as a whole. So I can't say whether it's like the per, like that is the way it feels so good for that album to end. So that's what I got in terms of answering that prompt. What do you got, Mason M? I am just finishing up. Uh, I had to consolidate some notes here. I also know, so I missed the first part of the prompt. So I basically had the same amount of time as you guys did to get something together. The only one that came to my mind was an album that we have discussed on the show, which is Actor by St. Vincent, which I think ends with just the same but brand new. And then you go back to the sequel, which is kind of like with Mitski Laurel Hell. And I'm glad that that um, Ian brought up Laurel Hell because I kind of had that same thought when I was listening to the album for the first time, which is like, oh, this is like a classic merger uh, event here, <laughs> which is they this might have been a, a cut and run after the first one or after the penultimate song here. Uh, but I came up with a lot a, a lot longer list of albums that I think are just kind of have perfect endings here. I'm just adding one more. Uh, this is in no particular um, order, but these are just the ones that I came, like, kind of to me initially here. Uh, right off the top, we have two albums that we covered on the show, which is Hold On Magnolia by Magnolia oh, yeah. Electrico. Great point. And Desperados Under the Eaves by Je- uh, Warren Zevon. Um, two fantastic, I think, enders, particularly Desperados Under the Eaves, which is just this, like, kind of wake up from this, like, kind of dream uh, that that uh these like kind of collected dreams that that uh Warren Zevon has and it's just like this it feels like waking up like hungover in Los Angeles and just everything's just I, I love that song uh the other one is here comes the warm jets from Brian Eno's uh solo debut here comes the warm jets from last year which is my favorite song from last year I think pamphlets from squid's bright green field of course you got some classics here you have purple rain um also a day in the life um and then you have this is when I got the email the first thing that came to my mind was a, maybe an unconventional choice which is uh my Bruce Springsteen album ender is wreck on the highway from the river which is like you know you listen to it's a quadruple album the second to last song on the river is um uh, uh one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen songs uh which is why I don't know why drive all night yeah drive all night just to buy you some shoes and then, uh, which is this, like, huge, bombastic, he's screaming, you know, you've got my love, my heart, my soul. And then Wreck on the Highway is just, like, much quieter, like, just, like, kind of mournful, um, just, like, sort of very misty, like, just sort of goodbye um, uh, off that album. And actually, Noah, one that came to my mind, an album ender that I like that I think they, I mentioned on the show, was Follow from Light Upon the Lake by Whitney. That's true. I think that that's my favorite uh, I think that I re-listened to that episode recently, and I think I said that that was my favorite song, and it's just, I think I still stand by that. I like how that, um, I like how that album leaves you on that. Uh, and my last one, fitting for discussion, the point of discussion today was, uh, the 25 minute, um, the 25 minute closing track from, uh, Sufjan Stevens' Age of Odds, Impossible Soul which is uh, comes with a lot of history for me personally, but a really audacious <laughs> and cool um, uh, closing, closing track uh, 
there. So that's my that's my list. You know what I you know what I that's just, on my list. It's on your list. It's on his list. He said it. He said ah, the show. Ah, we're gonna play the new drop. Ah. We're gonna debut the new drop. Here we go. All right, that was it. <laughs> that was a new drop. Mason, what is that drop from? You want to explain what that is? That's it's a uh in the in the when we were doing like the pre-show sort of powwow in the Zoom window, I mentioned I referenced that which was a um reference that which is a a Sarah Jessica Parker commercial uh for perfume uh that they used as a drop on the E network television show The Soup. Um, they would just like have it pop up, uh, as just like kind of a, just again, like a drop. And I mentioned it and Noah found the original ad and now it's in the drop library as, or the drop tabs as, as Mason's drop. So it's Mason's drop uh, it is in tandem. You yeah. have to listen to it while you eat Mason's snack, which is a very old reference to a, to a joke that we haven't talked about in a long ass time. Um, which is Mason? What is Mason's snack for maybe some new listeners? It's a, it's a, a plain, a single plain tortilla <laughs> that most likely has been sitting on top of your fridge. One left in the package for like a month and a half at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I will also say, "Geck to you from a thousand gecks." I think is a great ending track. Ooh, yeah. I'll let's say that. Go. I'll say that. I'll Hell say yeah. it, and I'm not afraid to say it. You know why? Why? This is the rhythm of the night. <laughs> that's why that's why I'm not afraid to say it. Oh, oh yeah. Dustin, what are we talking about? Did not see that one coming. <laughs> Dustin, what the fuck are we talking about today, album wise? Well, guess what? We're talking about an album that has an amazing closing track and an amazing opening track. Whoa. And hey. It may be a crazy statement to make, and people might hear this and think, well, what does that even truly mean? But this is the most underrated piece of media that I can think of. Wow. Mm. That's a extremely okay. bold claim. Here's how I measure that right now in the year 2021. Ha ha ha. Mason didn't know what year it is. Again. <laughs> Which today, this would be what? the By your standards, the 30th anniversary of 9-11, right, Mason? <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring them all out today. Let's bring out all the Woo! hits today. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yes, I didn't even remember what I was saying. Uh, how do you measure a piece of media being underrated? Why do you make that claim today? It's a ratio of how, how do you much... measure measure a year? That's true. That's fucking true, Mason. That's true. It is a ratio of how much I love this album to how often I read or hear other people talk about it. Or hear these songs out in the world somewhere. And the truth is that that is zero. The only other people <laughs> that I know know this album are my friends who discovered it with me back eight years ago, almost, uh, in our freshman year of college. And this album quickly became the closest thing to an anthem for us. I mean, there was a lot of music from then that we would listen to on off-roading trips, you know, in the car. Um, I have fond memories of listening to this album at night uh, with me and uh, my roommate, just albums on his laptop. There's one desk lamp on, everyone else is asleep. It's just a great moment. He actually fell asleep too, so it was literally just me listening to the album. Oh, yeah, and, and, and I close the laptop and go to sleep. 
Uh, the album is Sisyphus by Sisyphus. We'll get some snaps going for that. Sisyphus by Sisyphus. Most people probably know Sufjan Stevens. Maybe you don't know that in the early part of the last decade, he partnered up with electronic producer Sun Lux and Chicago rapper Serengeti. They came out with an EP in 2012, which is four songs. And then this album, full-length debut, and their only other album since then, was sort of commissioned for an art installation uh, by an artist uh, who they are all uh, big fans of and respect greatly. But it kind of ballooned a little bit, and they started adding to it. And it was sort of a mad science experiment in some ways. I think Sufjan has talked a lot about in interviews how they don't have that much in common. A Chicago black rapper, uh, him, a white singer-songwriter from Michigan, and then I think Sunlux is from Cleveland originally, but moved around a bunch, but also like an electronic producer uh, mainly. There's not a lot that on the surface seems like they have in common, but the experiment ended up, I think, probably exceeding their own expectations as well as any other expectations that someone else could have thought of uh, hearing about that way back then. I don't, I mean, I was basically a teenager still, so I don't even know as far as how this album was received uh, in the music scene at that point. I just know it from literally, we discovered it, my friends and I, and I've never heard anyone else ever talk about it since. I was you've you've basically hit all the things I was going to ask you already but do you remember exactly how it was discovered and by who in particular or what the occasion was that you heard it first Uh it's a I wish I did know the exact first moment but uh I was lucky in that I was paired up with my best friends by chance and just random luck uh for uh, our freshman year at the wonderful, amazing, incredible school known as Chapman University. Yes. let's. And you know what? We can't talk about them enough, I would say. <laughs> I, I agree. A school yeah. that hasn't done anything wrong ever. Yeah. A place, a beautiful place with wonderful people. It's the school um, with the golden rule. Uh, <laughs> yes, it damn sure is. It's the school with the golden rule. And if you don't follow that golden rule, you get uh, uh, kicked in the frick. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit dangerous, actually. It's one of the most dangerous places on earth, I would say. I had a crazy time. Anyways, Noah had a crazy time. He was in a different dormitory than I was freshman yes. year. Uh, I was in Northmoreland Hall on Let's the ground go. floor. Open up our door and we go right outside. It was great. Also the only dormitory where you could keep the door open. All the other dorms, there was a strict rule in place that the door had to close automatically. And that gets a McDonald's flute. Yeah, and it's very relevant to what we're talking about today. Anyways, uh... He discovered it on Spotify, my roommate, good friend, and just immediately we all gravitated towards it. I think that my music taste was still definitely in a developing phase at that point, so something as bombastic as this um, was kind of a godsend, to be honest, um, because I just don't think that I had heard anything like it before, but also it wasn't, I guess, too crazy to where it, like, took time for me to eventually appreciate it. Um, I just think that there's a very unique quality to this album that, as I said, kind of comes from it being somewhat of a mad science experiment. We will get in, we will touch on all those points by the time that we actually talk about this fucker. But Mason, 
my little friend, my little friend who I give kisses to every single day of your life, whether you want them or not. What's your history with this <laughs> or the people involved? I haven't heard. I had. I was not aware of this project at all. I think in terms, uh, like, if the the trio that's involved here, in terms of just for, uh, for basic level familiarity, uh, Sunlux, not terribly familiar with. Serengeti, I know Dennehy, which is his most popular song, of course, and I don't know much else other than that. And then Souf, I love Sufjan Stevens. Uh, my very first iPod, a gray iPod Nano. Uh, my way into music was just, you know, because I didn't have iTunes money, and I also just didn't know how to start diving through that catalog. I would just buy the top five favorite songs off uh, a given artist that interests me, Spotify, or not Spotify, iTunes. Um, and I think actually we had Illinois in the secret drive of fun that I might have uh, excised from a past episode when it came up earlier. Yeah. But basically, I had um, I had like the songs from his album "Come On Feel the Illinois" that were like the most popular on my iPod. Because uh, I just wanted to listen to what the popular kids were listening to. I guess whatever. Yeah. Um. Yep. But. That that music like Chicago and Caspier Pulaski Day and John Wayne Gacy Jr. That trio of songs were very formative for me as like a fourteen year old, just being like, oh man, like I like music can make me like sad and contemplative. I guess you know. Yeah. Um, and I really I went back from time like th- starting from there. I kind of got it. I got a little. I went back into his his uh, discography, just kind of back to Michigan. I think most of all because I thought that that uh, that pro- that state's project he said he was going to do was interesting, uh, and also uh, Redford showed up as I think maybe the final track of the Roots Undone, and I thought that was cool, so I wanted to hear that song in context. Listen to him a lot in college, and uh, Carrie and Lowell when that came out. Uh, that's the became one of my favorite albums i kind of i have like one time a year where i set aside listening just to listen to carrie and lowell uh it's around my mom's birthday i don't know if that means anything but we'll move on from it uh but he's an artist that i think like the more that i like um he's putting out like a lot of weird like kind of experimental stuff stuff that like i kind of see and respect his like um his his sort of drive and ambition and when i listen to it i'm like this is just interesting you know i'm glad that he, i'm interesting in in just what he makes and how he pivots kind of from project to project i like how he collaborates with people um but for some reason this particular project uh got away from me i didn't this was not on my radar at all when dustin uh suggested it um and i'll that's that's that for me there so Noah, I am now curious. Yes. Were you aware of this at all? You rang. What if I just started talking like that on the po- on the podcast like a big dumb fuck? You yeah, rang, Mason. Keep, keep doing it. Okay. That's your, that's your real voice. Your other your, your other voice has just been a bit. Real yeah, voice I, reveal. <laughs> real voice reveal. Real voice reveal. This is the rhythm of the night. Real voice reveal. Um. Yes, I talk like this actually off pod. My podcasting voice is so normal, and my fucking a real voice is just—I <laughs> sound like the dumbest guy. I sound like a, I, I sound like the most the smartest country bumpkin. Is who I sound like. 
This is actually our favorite moments for Friends of Noah when we get to talk to him on the podcast because it's actually normal for once. Because <laughs> it's, it's actually normal in the world. It's actually because when we hang out in real life, you got, you like give me you give me 60 seconds of allotted time and I can use that however I want to speak. Otherwise, I have to be remain in silence. Remain in light. That's a, that's an album that some people like. See, me too. So, <laughs> so what I'll say about this is I had never heard of this album or Sisyphus as a group ever. I had no idea who Serengeti was. I had no idea who Sun Lux was. And I had some familiarities with Sooth John Stevens. I'm not a, I don't have a particularly strong affinity for Sooth John Stevens, but I also don't dislike him and his music by any stretch. We actually covered Carrie and Lowell on my favorite podcast with uh, mm-hmm. singer songwriter Maya Lucia. And um, I had listened to Illinois just sort of on my own during the lockdown days. So I had a somewhat of a familiarity with him. And I remember one time I was like either in college or high school and I had the melody to the only thing from Carrie and Lowell stuck in my head. And I like couldn't get it out. And I literally remember like walking around going, and I just could not figure out what the fuck it was. And then I literally did figure it out by myself. I literally did just go deep into my brain. And I was like, oh, the only thing by Sufjan Stevens from Carrie and Lowell. Figured it out. <laughs> so that's basically my whole history with anyone revolving around this. Like I said, never had heard this album, never even knew this project existed until Dustin brought it forth to us. So that being said, Dustin, what the H? Now I got to play a drop. What the H? This is the rhythm of the night. What the H do you like about this album? Uh, everything. I like everything about this album. Um, I was, last time that I was on this podcast, uh, we had somewhat of a special episode because we were mainly talking about movie theaters. True. And, uh, local art house cinemas. Uh, but we also talked about The Seldom Seen Kid by Elbow, which is another underrated album, I think, as far as North American audiences are concerned. But... That episode also went pretty long because the movie theater discussion was kind of the focal point, I guess. Absolutely. And so I'm glad that I didn't choose Sisyphus for that because I think that it should be talked about a little bit more than uh, when we the, the time that we had to talk about the album in that episode. Uh, but as I was kind of talking about earlier... The mad science vibe of this, uh, the flow from track to track, uh, and the general vibe of I've never heard anything like this before or since, um, again, just caught a very young Dustin's ear uh, in a time where my musical taste was still developing and there were certain things then that I didn't like that I love now. Um, and this album has always come as a, uh, like I said, just something that my friends and I, the only people in the world I know who actually know what this album is, uh, can quote and can put us back, uh, to that time. So there is a definitely a nostalgic, uh, quality to it. Um, but I think the unexpected combination of, Serengeti's rapping and flow with 
the qualities of Sufjan Stevens uh, and his songwriting and singing that we were pretty familiar with as far as just connecting to the rest of his work. Um, mixed in with some phenomenal beats and synths and just general production, which I think mainly comes from Sun Lux, uh, but not necessarily making any claims. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall from the creation of this, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, you'd like to be a fly on the wall when I'm going to the bathroom, too. And that deserves its own drop. <laughs> and that deserves its own drop, and we'll give it to him right now. What are we going to do? Oh, yeah. I had to have it. I had to have it. I had to have it be, <laughs> I had to be a fly on the wall while Noah's taking a piss or shit. Uh, Mason M., what was your experience listening to this? Um, I like Dustin's point that he... Or Dustin said something, and it made me realize that, like, this album could serve, if it found you at the right time, as, like, a departure point for each of the different sort of elements here. Totally. Um, where I could see three different people listening to this project and be like, okay, I want to see where this, what's up with the Serengeti guy and going down that rabbit hole. Like, oh, what, who's this, who's this, like, uh, Sufjan Stevens person? I want to go down there. It's like, what's Sunlux? And then going down there. Um, and I, had the there there's times on this album that i feel it's kind of getting like the the kind of the songwriting or the song craft those three elements are not necessarily wrestling for control but not having a not not gelling in a in a super cohesive way for me personally but there's other times where they really do like sort of find the like take these three the, these three artists here or five or whatever these and finding like the kind of um, Venn diagram, I guess, of their either their sound or what they can bring to a project like this, when it really starts to sing. For me, that's things like Lion Share, uh, Rhythm of Devotion, the last song, Alcohol. I think really just find what that, um, just just kind of find what what those songs need to be. Um, that was my initial impression, and I kind of you know heard on second listen a little more sort of connective tissue and it starts to feel a little more like a, a collaboration. Um, and I kind of just feel like it is a good, it's a better like sort of entry point into um, other, like Sufjan Stevens, Serengeti, Sunlocks into them than like necessarily bringing a lot of history with one particular artist um, to this project. Cause for me personally, I was really listening and focused the first time on like on Sufjan Stevens. And I was just kind of like, well, where's the damn, I was like, Millhouse, like where, why are we, let's, I want to get the fucking fireworks factory. Let's get some more Sufjan in here. Um, and, uh, but you know, I think on the whole, it's a, certainly an interesting project. Um, and I think that that's really kind of where I'm at with, with it. Um, Noah, where are you with, with Serengeti here? I, this is okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to. It's 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 weird. It's weird having to talk about this because I was so not into it the first time I listened to it. I was like so off put by most of the album the first time I listened to it, and I did what mm -hmm. made, what what Dustin you know asked of us to do, which is listen to it in one unbroken sitting with headphones on, and I did, and. 
I would. I don't think it's a stretch to say I'm the res- I'm the resident hip hop and rap guy on this pod, which is not really saying a whole lot based on who who hosts this but show. Certainly of the two of us, but it, it's yeah. the truth of the two of us. I'm way more into rap and hip hop, and have brought it on the show before, and. Maybe even you could say I will be bringing it onto the show, and that is a little bit of a teaser for what's up to come. Possibly, ah! everyone's freaking out. Everyone's getting, everyone's shitting and pissing and throwing up, which is funny to me. Uh, <laughs> You're bursting down my front door. I have to go to handle this really quick. I have to, Excuse me. You have to go. I have to go put my little my little peener in the top upper decker of the toilet, and I have to put it in there. <laughs> um, I have to stand at the top of my stairs while people are beating on my front door and be like, "Don't you guys have anything better to do? It's Sunday. It's Sunday, it's Sunday, and it's nice out, <laughs> and it's and we get to make flurry for free today." <laughs> when you when you listen Wait, to this, seriously, no, <laughs> no. Oh. I was gonna say, but everyone, everyone who's listening to this the day it comes out, go to your McDonald's and play them this section and ask them for a free McFlurry. I'm sure that will go over really well with everybody. Um, I did not really enjoy this the first time I listened to it. I did not think that Serengeti's rapping style was interesting. I actually found it to be quite annoying, and that was actually the word I was thinking about the most during this was clunky and annoying. Uh, when I listened to this the first time, I thought it started out. Relatively strong. I was a big fan of Calm It Down and Booty Call and Rhythm of Devotion. Those were I was like, yeah, I can get into this. And then something shifted after Rhythm of Devotion that first time I listened to it where I was just like, ooh, basically from Flying Ace to Hardly Hanging On, I was just not there for any of those. And then I did enjoy Alcohol, the final track at the end. And I was just like, oh, man. Am I really gonna? Am I really not gonna like fuck with this? Like, is this really what we're doing on the last guest episode? I'm just not gonna fuck with this shit at all. But I put it on again this morning to listen to it again, and I can genuinely say I did enjoy it more the second time. Uh, I found the cohesion to actually be there. I did not feel cohesion as Mason was kind of talking about in his listening experience. Uh, it sounded like sort of three layers all trying to meld into one layer and it was one's got rocks one's got grass and one's got like molten lava or whatever and it's just like not working you know it's like three different textures that don't really go together but I did feel it a little bit more on the second listen um I don't know why I can't really say more to why I was off put by it the first time other than I just found it to be sort of clunky and annoying mostly in the rapping style from Serengeti um but I guess I, I guess I'm with it a little more than I was the first time. I don't think I'm gaga about this sort of as a whole, but I will say that first four stretch of Calm It Down, Take Me, Booty Call, and Rhythm of Devotion, I quite liked that first four stretch quite a bit. I think I liked the production uh, on that quite a bit. And when it does get a little more rap-centric, in Booty Call, I did like that. When I felt like that was, okay, this is Serengeti's, like, moment to shine and everyone's going to support him. That's when I feel like it worked best, when it was sort of like, we're going to let one guy sort of step up to the plate and sort of do his thing, or we're going to let one group sort of step up and do their thing, and we're all going to support, you know, the other two are going to support. That's when I feel like it worked the best, and Booty Call's a pretty easy example of that. Otherwise, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's fine. Dustin? What do you think about all that? Well, it's kind of crazy to me, honestly. I don't know. I mean, you know, everyone has their own 
tastes. Um, but the uh, the reason that I said um, to listen to it in one unter- one uninterrupted sitting uh, is because something that really strikes me about this album is how each track flows into the next. And there are songs where Serengeti is taking the spotlight, I suppose, and then there are other songs where he's not present vocally and it's Sufjan that's singing. But I just think that how those songs blend into each other, sometimes how the songs quote each other and call back to different musical motifs that we've already heard um, is something very unique to this project. And there was never any really uh, points, even back then for me, when I was like, oh, is this, who is this, like, in each retrospect, who's creating what sounds? It just came off as so natural to me. Um, and the other thing about listening to it in one unter- one uninterrupted sitting, I can't say that word. Um, you'll get there. By the end is, of the show, you'll be okay, saying, I like, can't say any words. Yeah, it'll be the last word that I say. Um, <laughs> ever. It'll be the last word you say ever, by the yep. way. So get ready for that. And the uh, the ability to sit down, ideally not, you know, doing the dishes or uh, laundry or whatever, but literally just sitting and listening to this and taking it in. I find it so easy to both wander off uh, in your own head and close your eyes, but still see things and listen to the different textures and let them take you to different feelings and, and moments. But also, even now, eight years later, I'm still hearing things that I've never heard before, which is kind of one of the best things uh, an album can do for me. One of the things I look towards is if it is something that I truly love, uh, I will hear things putting on some good headphones, you know, now that I don't hear when I'm in the car or when I'm focusing on a different part. Maybe it's the lyrics, maybe it's the instrumentation, but something about it, when you really pay close attention, uh, something's hidden in there that you don't notice before. And I think if you were to listen to this album more, I think you would find that because literally even last night when I listened to it, I was taken by like, there's a lot of background chatter just from hot mics in the studio that they include in there and the choice to do so uh, and not have it be distracting because again, like I never really noticed it before until this time, or at least in certain songs. Uh, that's just something that I love. I see that actually. I mean, I see that the with with time and with more listens, this would reveal itself. You know, I think it for me and what I would imagine maybe Mason as well, and maybe someone who's coming in to this who's never heard it before. You know, it's gonna be a. Are you able to stand, or are you able to enjoy the meeting of these worlds? Are you able to like either mm-hmm. set it aside, whether you like certain things or you don't like certain things, or whether are you able to accept it as this is what they're trying to do? And I yeah. think there's moments where it works way better than others. Like I said, I think those first four tracks, it works pretty well. The middle of the album, I, I, I it loses me for the most part. So that's where I'm at with that. But I understand what you're saying about the repeat listens. I kind of have the opposite thing, Noah, just in my listening word for just, I, I kind of feel like after Rhythm of Devotion, the album just like kind of finds itself and opens it up a little more there. Um, I also think that, uh, which is interesting, I think that, that we split on that. Um, uh, I think that if, for me, 
I don't know what happened between yesterday and today when when I I didn't I I did as Dustin requested I listened to this in uninterrupted sittings, um, but something changed. Something I don't know what happened between yesterday and today. Where like the second time I was listening to it, I was just like I'm I'm hearing more how these guys are complimenting each other, you know, rather than um what sort of separates like separates them either in sound or, or approach or, or whatever. And once I like, kind of, I guess, tuned myself to listen to that stuff, it became a little more apparent. I started to find those sort of like, uh, I didn't find or have good enough headphones where I could hear like the background chatter that Dustin pointed out uh, from that hot mic, but it's certainly um, setting aside dedicated time to listen to it. It's like, um, oh, but, but I, going back uh, two points, I certainly heard things like like recurring motifs and stuff like that. And I think I just kind of have because I'm coming into it with a lot of Sufjan knowledge and I know like how he works with collaborators and like how he kind of makes albums. You know, I was expecting to find a narrative here. I thought it was going to be about Sisyphus. I didn't think it was just going to be this this project. And then once I ex- like left that expectation, I was able to find and hear those um, like little recurring motifs and like kind of start to appreciate it as a little bit more of a closer to a whole than I felt initially. Um, but ugh, fuck, I was going to come back to a point I was about to make. It doesn't matter. Um, it don't but, matter. But, it, no, you touched on yeah. something interesting there, which is how Sufjan Stevens approaches, uh, his other projects because he's talked about how, uh, he's either doing it completely himself or he's directing other people to achieve a goal that he hears very clearly in his head that he knows what yeah. he wants. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that, and he's worked on other um, projects with collaborators where it's it's not quite like that, uh, like the the Planets. I forget that name of that album. The James McAllister. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just called, I forget what it's called, but I, I th- that, that album's really lovely. I like that album. And then there's this. Um, and I think it's totally about taking not a whole back seat, but changing up uh, your usual uh, rhythms and comforts um, and working with uh, these other two people, which are not really from the same world and came to music uh, in different ways as well. Uh, yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, all I can say is that I think, you know, there's no one over the other that shines for me. They're, they're working in a very unusual, but total harmony. I kind of have that feeling with some with some of the David Byrne St. Vincent album Love This Giant. Um I uh that was something that came to mind just that's a cool collaboration. No, you were about to say something and I cut you off. I'm sorry. That's okay. I actually didn't say anything at all. I just opened my mouth. <laughs> so it's actually it's actually fine. Uh I do remember the point I wanted to make. Okay. So I do actually okay, have something I wanted to say, but it's a fight you, for okay, the death. you first. But at, you first, okay, you first. All right, all right. You first, Ma- you first. Make sure you write it down and remember it because I this might go off on on somewhere else. I did, I did. Okay, I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Dustin, are you a, I know you're a fan of gorillas. I know you're a fan of gorillas. I am. Are you a fan of nerd, N-E-R-D? Not familiar. That was Pharrell Williams's group uh before right. he went solo. That no no one ever really dies is what right. that stands for. I'm curious what you would think of nerd. It is a little bit more hip hop focused, but there are instrument instrument wise and sonically, there this album did remind me a lot 
of what I've heard of them, which was, I think, their first album called In Search Of, uh, which has the lap dance song on it, which is probably what they're most famous for. Um, and they're interesting, too. I like some of their stuff quite a bit and some of their stuff I don't like. I remember I was in a Zoom. Actually, Mason, I think you and I were in the same Zoom party uh, for fa- past guest in front of the show, Sienna Kay, where she played, All the girls standing in the line for the bathroom. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's nerd, too. And that song is fucking awesome. But then sometimes I'm listening to them, and I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, this is so strange. And then they have that one song with Rihanna where it's like, I get it how I live it. I live it how I get it. That one? I don't know. Okay, whatever. You I would should be listen to the, uh, from the EP for Sisyphus, the last song called Octomom. I want to hear what your thoughts on that are. <laughs> oh, boy. Do you guys remember Octomom, that game? And, oh, yeah. and the real Octomom herself? That's a fucking throwback if I've ever heard one. Damn. Damn. Uh, Dustin, I'd be interested to hear what you think of Nerd, if you find an album that looks interesting for them. I think you might enjoy it. Text you what I think about it. Okay, you're going to text me, and then I will post the screenshots online, and then I'm going to put the pudding that I'm doing Cosby for some reason now, which is probably cool and good of me to do. Probably. Uh, Because everyone likes him so much. (laughs) Everyone likes him so much now. Mason, go ahead and say the thing that you were going to say. Well, something Dustin, Dustin said earlier made me think about like a a a, t- a point of conversation no and I have brought up on this show a lot which is and and has been brought up a lot has been the the ubiquity of music in our life nowadays right. how it is just like even if even if it's not something like hearing perfume genius at target it's like having your own headphones in at target while you're doing your grocery shopping or things like that, just like how you can have, you know, just music or whatever you want. And it's it because of that, you don't really set aside dedicated time to listen to music in your week or whatever. And it's can sometimes people have that relationship to movies as well, where it's like, I'll just watch something on the train. Like, I'll just watch something on Netflix on the train on my on my cell phone or I, you know, it's much more likely to have dedicated movie watching time at your own. Or they just put shit on in the background, you know, like exactly. Yeah, I've actually never fully gotten that as a thing. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm doing something, I don't want that background noise. I just want to be I just want to be focused on whatever I'm doing. So when everyone's like, yeah, I just threw on fucking die hard in the background. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You just threw on die hard in the background. That's crazy to me. I, I can, think for I can't movies, do that with it's like, like sort of the idea that mm-hmm. you have, especially maybe if you live alone, that you have voices going on in the home so you don't feel the silence. But there are other people who appreciate silence, I guess, or would rather focus for, on whatever they're doing. Yeah, for me, it's more like if I usually have like not necessarily a movie, but just like something on the background when I'm cooking or doing chores in particular, just so that like my mind and at least my ears can be occupied while my hands and and eyes are just are doing their fucking thing uh you know where it's like it's my go-to for like chores and stuff is either like an album i have on vinyl which is usually something i've heard a million times and just like to have the sort of energy in the room while i'm doing chores which i fucking hate or like a siskel and ebert episode where they're just talking about like four like maybe one or two movies that i'm familiar with but three things that just don't really exist (laughs) um 
but yeah. Um, or I guess I, I just, guess for I, me the yeah. one exception is I put on it's on the list with Helen Mason when I'm when I'm doing my chores and I'm like, yeah, that was such a good episode. And I say that about every single episode. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And every yeah, time yeah. Mason starts talking, you put on the vacuum so you can't actually hear that part. <laughs> I just skip forward <laughs> until I hear my voice, but close enough. <laughs> right. I stop whatever uh, I'm doing, even if I'm like in like my hands are full. I drop everything and I just go 15, 15, 15, 15. And I have to hit it about 17 times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the point I wanted to make was just kind of like how, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward in two week and on two Saturdays from now, or maybe it's even next Saturday. The music box is doing a double feature of uh, Peggy Sue got married in the last temptation of Christ on 35 oh, wow. millimeter. Which are both two movies that I've been really what a curious wild to see. double feature. Yeah, they're doing this series now called High and Low, where they're pairing up like a highbrow thing with a lowbrow, a lowbrow thing. Like they did, uh, I couldn't go, uh, but they were doing um, symbio black symbiotic something something something. Yeah, yeah. Take one and Ed TV. Wow, that is fucked yeah. up. But I get it. I like. I get like the pairing. That's a cool pairing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I'm thinking about like, and this is a conversation that we had Noah and Dustin. I think with our prior showing of Dustin T on this show, which is just the difference of seeing like a movie that you've only seen on like DVD or Blu-ray even, and then seeing it in the theaters either on film or like with just a better projection and sound, just like the different things that you notice and experience. Absolutely. Um, and that was like that sort of situation and that sort of like just, oh, blah, 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 you know, just noticing different things was something that I had to come to with music in my life, like fairly recently, um, that, you know, the difference between what you hear when you are listening to something like on, uh, on tape, like I have, or, or, or on vinyl or through really good headphones or just like through really bad headphones on a walk or like streaming on Spotify or Apple music or on YouTube and on your phone, just, just different things like that. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so interesting to me that that is just a a process that we have that can capture this stuff and there's like just such such weird science and like what you hear and totally. what you don't that it's just it it is nice sometimes to just set aside time to listen to music i guess and not treat it as this just like this uh treat it like you do books or or, or stuff like that um i don't know i i guess i this well, is just it's way a, a long way for me to get on some kind of soap a soapbox but well uh, there's something to it yeah i mean it's like you you know when you're playing a video game it's hard to passively play the video game you know what i mean like you right. got to be in it you're if you're really trying to play it most likely 99 percent of the time you're actively engaged in playing that video game movies it's gotten harder, some would say, with the with these freaking things, you know, with these freaking mm-hmm. smartphones. Some I call it a dumb mm-hmm. phone, personally. Uh, with these dumb phones that we have uh, in our yeah, pockets. Yeah, it's Wi-Fi enabled. <laughs> My Wi-Fi well, hate enabled. And then it's the photo of me to put like, all the pills in my hand and they're all shaped like the social medias that I consume. And it says, does anybody else see what's wrong here? Does anybody else see a problem here? And fucking, for some reason, dig and stumble upon her there as well alongside Twitter and Instagram. I forgot about funny. stumble upon. That's a Mason fave. I like stumble upon my freshman year of college because that was 2012. Uh, that <laughs> was just fun to click. And then you get like the same, like you use it enough, you start to see the same things pop up and you're like, okay, this maybe not be the best way to travel through cyberspace. 
Yeah, the best way to do that is with two condoms on. So when you nut every single time, <laughs> you make sure you know you don't get you don't get a virus. But I'm your Mazda. But I'm. I'm gonna double bag the it. Two with- condoms is one free. So just practice safe sex, folks. Do not use two condoms. The friction will cause breaks. That's true. Uh, if you are going to use two condoms, put one on your penis or your other parts, and then put one on yourself, like in the naked gun. Yeah, put, put it on your head and then blow it up really, really big, <laughs> so that when you nut, it pops on the top of your head. <laughs> Yeah, I know you that you love that, Dustin. Anyway, it's just music. It very rarely, I think, do people actively listen to music in that way, and I think yes. that's a good point. Yes, yes. We actively participate in other mediums of art, movies, video games, anything that's visual. It does usually require a great amount of your like full undivided attention, but stuff that you don't have to—music, podcasts, you know, whatever—you know, stuff that's not visual. You don't always have to have a full, you know, devoted time frame to listen to it or to right. experience it. It can be passive yeah. in that way. So to it's have an like, opportunity. Fuck, I'm on the bus. What do I have on Spotify right now? Like, what's my what's on my playlist right now? And you look and it's a thousand hours of fart sounds. <laughs> Just that. That's all you it's, have downloaded. It's a thousand miles by Vanessa Carlton. <laughs> it is. It's that. It's anything with a number in it. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's 96 tears by question mark and the Mysterians. Anyway, that's all I have to say about this album. Uh, my favorite tracks were Calm Down, Take Me, Booty Call, Rhythm of Devotion, and Alcohol. Uh, Dustin, do you have any faves on this one? Uh, I would say that Flying Ace is my... That's crazy to me. Yeah, that's crazy favorite. to me. <laughs> um, just based on, like, you know, the I think the... If I go to Apple Music here... Oh, interesting. Uh, that's interesting that you would just flippantly say that you're an Apple Music listener. Just uh, in the middle Spotify. of Spotify. Uh, moving on, the star in Apple Music. Uh, there's two. It's a stars. hard on Spotify, by the way. It's a hard on Spotify. No, 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 no. You're not understanding what I'm saying. The stars in the music uh, in Apple Music are for "Take Me" and "Rhythm of Devotion," which means that those are the most listened to songs for Apple Music listeners. Okay. Uh, I don't know what it is on Spotify, but I just feel like "Flying Ace." Uh, I mean, I know you. Uh, I think that song goes in the toilet. Uh, but for me, yep. I think that it's the underrated song on this album that is underrated. Anyways, uh, you're kind of preaching to the choir, Mason, about, you know, sitting down and, and listening to uh, an album for what it is and not doing anything else. And I think if, if you love music, then you know that it can transport you to crazy places. Uh, and this is an album that does that for me. I sit down, close my eyes. I'm going to let it do its magic. I hope that anyone listening checks it out and that it works for them. You should definitely check out. We covered it on the show. You should check out A Softer Focus by Claire Rousset. Mm. Did you I remember that episode. To, you know, you yeah. remember that episode? Did you listen to that album at all? I didn't, but it's on my list because I listen to this show to know what things go on my list. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's what I say about that. Mason, any final thoughts? Because I got some fast facts. No, but look, I have a Claire Rousse on tape, too. Holy shit. Uh, I actually have three of her on tape. <laughs> no one cares. Uh, I <laughs> think that um, uh, the, the final thoughts, I, before we get to recommending and stuff, like the, the, I guess the things that I do, I end up, I think, liking this album not as much as Dustin and kind of maybe a little more than Noah. I think that there is... Um, I, I you want to talk about compliment you know complimentary elements earlier. I think that Serengeti is such a good um, 
he's very good at at sort of uh, uh, creating, I guess, scenes and the kind of scenery. And uh, that's I don't know quite know what I'm saying, but he's very like he. I, I like his the second time I listen to this album, I start to really appreciate how he his 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 lyrics, how he's writing song his uh, lyrics there, and uh, the difference between him and Sufjan, where Sufjan's very uh, inward focused and kind of how they they complement each other on that. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, Sunlux adds a very, uh, sort of, um, a deep kind of, I guess, sonic plane for them to, to hang out in. Um, I guess, yeah, that's my final thoughts on, on that, I think. Noah, do you have any final thoughts? Final thoughts are just, it's worth... I was going to say it's worth a spin, and I guess I agree. I guess I do think it's worth a spin. Um, because it is unique, but it's, I don't know if I would, like, you know, if you find it at 18 and your music taste isn't, like, fully, you know, blossomed yet, or if it's in the process of blossoming, I definitely can see how this is, like, you know, foundational or, like, the shit, you know, when you listen to it at that point. I guess maybe for me, I just would rather listen to TV on the radio. <laughs> to be to be frank with you, I love. I just the maybe the itch that this scratches for you, Dustin, is the same itch that TV on the radio scratches for me. So in that way, I Makes can totally appreciate that, you know. But I would just rather listen to TV on the radio if I'm being real. And I would rather listen to Return to Cookie Mountain and then Dear Science and then whatever their 2014 one I think was called Seeds. So yes. I'd just rather listen to all that. But that's all I gotta say. Some fast facts for your ass. For your, you guys, got to sit your asses down and listen to these fast facts. Full attention. I'm sitting my white ass down and listening. I'm sitting my white ass down and listening to Noe's fast facts on it. Episode 105. <laughs> it's on the list with Noah and Mason, a podcast about albums, underrated albums, movies, and a whole lot more. Sisyphus is the debut studio album by Sisyphus, a collaborative project between Serengeti, Sunlux, and Sufjan Stevens. It was released through Asthmatic Kitty, which is of course Sufjan's record label. Uh, on March 18, 2014, the project was commissioned by the Walker Art Center and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra's Liquid Music Series to accompany an exhibition of the work of visual artist Jim Hodges, scheduled to run from February 14th and t- through May 11th, 2014. Jeremy D. Larson of Pitchfork gives the album a 6.2 out of 10, saying more often than not, Sisyphus misses the mark, but the album's dense, melancholic back half represents its strongest moments. Meanwhile, Paul McGinnis of The Guardian gave the album four out of five stars, saying, even when the fusion doesn't work, you can't help but admire the creativity. And Mason, you were saying earlier, like, I don't know where critically people fall on this. That's more or Dustin less... Dustin was saying that. That's, oh, Dustin was saying that? Dustin, and then Mason, ignore what I'm about to say. Dustin, earlier you were saying that you don't know where people critically fall on that. I've read that it's more or less mixed. So it's a, it's a love it or hate it type situation. So there you go. That was part of those fast facts. <laughs> David Cohn, better known by his stage name Serengeti, is an American rapper from Chicago, Illinois. Chicago, Illinois. He is the great nephew of jazz trumpeter Sonny Cohen. He grew up in various parts of Chicago as his parents divorced when he was five, and he started writing verses while he was attending Morgan Park High School on the South Side, baby. You ever been there? I've not been to Morgan Park High School, nor do I think I've been to Morgan Park. Well, you and I are going to go. Probably a nice area. You and I are going to go when I'm there next, which, nice. you know. Cool. Uh, he attended Southern Illinois University Carbondale. You ever been there? Uh, no, I have not actually been there either. Well, he became friends we're there. Go there too. No, we're not going there. I don't <laughs> give a fuck. That's so far away from Chicago. Um, and he became friends with Open Mike Eagle, 
which is actually very interesting because Open Mike Eagle is a guy that I have sort of mixed feelings about where sometimes I'm so in line with what he's doing and other times I'm not as in line. And I also am not a huge fan of Aesop Rock, which I know you're a huge fan of, Dustin, right? I don't know where you got that information from. Uh, I got it from your parents. <laughs> I called oh, them and talked to them about uh, talking to you. <laughs> what if instead of uh, what if instead of Open Mike Eagle, it was uh, Open Mike Huckabee? There's the drop. All right, what else do we got Thanks. here with this with this fucker? I do like that though, Mason. Uh, Sun Lux is an American experimental band. Originally, the solo project and moniker of the founding mother member Ryan Lott, the band's first three albums, At War with Walls and Mazes, We Are Rising and Lanterns, shaped the band's unique sound through post rock. I was actually thinking of Ben Massey, who likes open, uh, who likes Aesop Rock. That's what I was thinking. Mm, I'm sorry, Dustin. Yeah, he's not the guest today. <laughs> no, he's not. And he never I can will go be and get him if you want. Please don't. I don't want to see him. And electronic influences. With the release of their fourth studio album, Bones, in 2015, Rafik Bhatia and Ian Chang joined Sun Lux, transforming it into a three-piece. After the release of their EP, Strangers, Forms, and Remedy, uh, the band's fifth album, Brighter Wounds, was released in February of 2018. Jim Hodge is a New York-based installation artist. He is known for mixed media sculptures and collages that involve delicate artificial flowers, mirrors, chains as spider webs, and cut-up jeans. Jim Hodges' Give More Than You Take was a mid-career retrospective of his work at the Walker Art Center and the Dallas Art Museum. The exhibition opened in the Dallas Art Museum on October 6, 2013 and visited Walker in uh, and visited Walker in Minneapolis and the Art Institute of or the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston and the Hammer Museum, which we love the seats there in Los Angeles, closing on January seventeenth, twenty fifteen. That is my mom's birthday. Shout out to my mom. The retrospective was accompanied by a large format appraisal of Hodges' work, edited by Jeffrey Grove and Olga Viso. Dustin, you know how this shit works. Mercedes Valuable Player, named after Connie. Uh, from Mercedes, Mercedes Ruel's performance of Connie from Married to the Mob, a 1988 Jonathan Demi movie that we like. Also, uh, Chef Ian brought on to the show. That's kind of how we got there. That's kind of how much fun we have on the shows. We just sort of do things like that. So, Dustin, who, what, which, or when is your Mercedes Valuable player for this album? And do you recommend it? I do recommend it. It is the rhythm of the album that I must give a Mercedes Valuable Player Award to, which I think is mostly from Sun Lux. Uh... The sampling and the programming and the live drums, uh, I think, are never something that feels tacked on. I think they're intrinsically woven into the very fabrics of these songs and just how they change the way that the album opens with Comet Down compared to the way that it ends with the most mostly instrumental, not entirely instrumental, but mostly instrumental trance uh, that is alcohol. Uh, it just gets me every single time, and I gotta shout it out. Mason? I'm also gonna give my MVP to Sunlux. It was the most surprising element of the collaboration for me was how much that stood out to me on both listens. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm gonna give this one a conditional recommend, I think. Um, just because... Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of don't know what to do with it almost. Um, I don't know how, if I would be, uh, how often I return to the full thing. I'm certainly kind of curious to see what I would pick up on other times there. But I think if you are coming into the album with a lot of, uh, sort of, I guess, baggage with one particular actor or another, um, you know, 
my condition would be trying not to bring too much of that with you. And if you're coming into this blind, I guess would be the condition would be, uh, you know, see what interests you and go follow off of them. Um, put three condoms on. That yeah. would be my condition. Put three condoms on. Absolutely. <laughs> if yeah. you put two but, on, it'll snap. But if you put three on, you're yeah. going to have a child. <laughs> That's yeah. the reverse effect. Um, but yeah, I will give this, I will give my Mercedes valuable player to the first four tracks that four track riff at the beginning that's when i'm most into it and for some reason it just loses me basically through to the end up until the back half of alcohol to be honest with you not even i don't even really love that first half but i do like the way that that track ends its build i do like it how that back half sort of crescendos so i'm gonna give that to my that's my mercedes valuable player and i don't know i guess i gotta give it a do not recommend because i just couldn't see myself truly recommending this to someone but I don't hate it either. Like, I feel like if the 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 conflation is if you give it a do not recommend, you hate it. And I don't hate it. I just can't see myself being like, you got to check out this album. So I guess I got to give it a do not recommend. Sorry, Dustin. I'm sorry that I got to do it. But mm. that's where I'm at with it. So, sorry. I didn't come prepared with a uh, hundred different sad drops to represent my feeling now because I, I just couldn't have expected this to be the case. This is the rhythm of the night. Nope, that's not, that doesn't represent my feelings. I had to have it. That would be if you loved the album, if you said this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. There it is. That's the one we want. That's the one we want. The fuck, 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 fuck. Well, speaking of fuck, 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 Dustin, what is the movie that we're talking about today? Uh, Well, speaking (laughs) of fuck, 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 I made a mistake and uh, my laptop is dying. So I need to go and get my charger so that we can really get into this next part. All right. Okay, don't 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 stop recording anybody. Uh, I'm going to go pee. I'll be right back. Uh-huh. I'm gonna get, and I'm going to get more water. I'm also going to get more water. So just everyone everyone's keep going recording. to do something. No, stop. Yes. I should probably not leave bring my recorder with me. gonna wait for mason <laughs> no this is going in the show well it is because that's because that's how mason does it where he just speaking leaves, of the devil i just leave shit hey. like this in the show meeting a banana yeah. i'm hungry as fuck <laughs> <laughs> i gotta eat something man i don't want to bring anything that had a crunch to it I and mean, that's like mostly what i have in my house for the most part is shit that has mm. a crunch to it whether it's like vegetables or snacks or whatever so gotta get the softness no big deal. Um, okay. sh- are we ready to keep going? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Spe- speaking of fuck, fuck, fuck. Fuck! <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck! Dustin, what'd you bring us movie-wise? So, the small backstory here is that I knew that I was going to be on the show uh, for a little while. I uh, didn't know when specifically. And so I was thinking about what I was going to bring on. I already knew. I was going to bring on Sisyphus. Uh, turns out that didn't work. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I didn't know what movie to bring on. And then I saw in November at the New Beverly Cinema a film called Hands on a Hard Body. That's right. And I That's was right. like, wow, this is an awesome documentary. Quentin Tarantino has said it's one of his favorite documentaries. He 
I think there's a clip from the Tonight Show or with Jimmy Fallon. He talks about it. But other than that, if it wasn't for Quentin Tarantino, I would never have heard of this movie. You can only buy it on Apple TV. But thanks to Quentin Tarantino, there is a 35 mil print of it. And I guess he owns it. And so it plays every now and then at the New Beverly. Highly recommend you go see that movie. Noah decided to put it on his end of the year list. That's right. Or it's on the list. So I decided, even though I was also there uh, for a Q&A, the director, S.R. Bindler, was there. Gave a lot of great insight and backstory on the film. But ultimately I decided, well, Noah mentioned it for his end of the year list. Maybe I will think of something else. And then literally hmm. two weeks ago. Yeah. Or actually... Three weeks week. by the time this comes out, right? Well, sure. No, but it's a week and two days ago from when I recorded this, or when we recorded this. Okay, so it'll be like two weeks. When yeah. Uh, I went to the Arrow Theater, also in Los Angeles. Arrow. Shouts out to the Arrow. It's my favorite theater in the world. Um, they were doing a little special Gary Valentine's Day weekend to coincide mm. with Licorice Pizza, uh, whose main character is named Gary Valentine. And Paul Thomas Anderson was invited to do a bunch of programming um, for that weekend. Uh, Licorice Pizza played on Valentine's Day. He did a Q&A. was lucky to get a ticket for that. But on the Friday, the opening night was a double feature of Punch Drunk Love on 35mm. Let's go. And Sabrina, also on 35mm. Let's go. And I decided to throw a curveball and pick Sabrina for today's show. Huge curveball. Never would have never would have anticipated this happening in my It's awesome. Truly millions of years of knowing you, Dustin, because you are so old to me. <laughs> the millions of years that I have known you could never have anticipated this. Well Yeah, Dustin is the god emperor of it's on the list. He's the only person I know who's older than Mason. <laughs> There's nothing that brings brings me greater joy, especially in light of your reaction to Sisyphus, than throwing a curveball. And surprising you with the movie. What is your history with Sabrina prior to seeing it uh, at the Arrow and just Billy Wilder on the whole? My history is that uh, the two weeks ago, if you asked me, hey, you know that one Audrey Hepburn movie called Sabrina? I would have been like, yeah, I think I've heard of that. And then if you asked the follow-up question, yeah, and you know how Billy Wilder directed, directed it? I would be like, no, I didn't actually know that Billy Wilder directed it. That's awesome, dude. So I knew very little other than that Audrey Hepburn was in it. But Paul Thomas Anderson selected it to be the part two of the evening to follow up Punch Trunk Love. And it was on 35mm. So I was excited and I went and he introduced the evening. Uh, he really didn't say anything about Punch Trunk Love other than that it's a film that's very close to his heart. And he said some things about Sabrina that maybe we can circle back to during the fun facts Part of the episode. Okay, maybe. We'll Ooh. see how that goes. We'll see how that you? goes. I know Noah likes to do that himself, and no <laughs> one else talks during that time. It's one of my. It's probably my favorite moment of the entire show. For two or three sweet-ass minutes, two to five sweet-ass minutes, it's just Noah Central, baby. But, uh, yeah, I guess the uh, thing about Billy Wilder is that he directed, he's one of the greatest, he's the greatest director of his era and just one of the greatest directors ever. He's directed Sunset Boulevard. He's directed Double Indemnity. He's directed The Apartment, Ace in the Hole. Those are kind of the massive heavy hitters that people know him for. 
And even a chuckle fuck like I didn't know that he directed Sabrina. So I kind of think that within his filmography, it's a little underrated. Sure. But the way this evening went was Punch Drunk Love paid first. And it was one of the most beautiful 35 mil prints that I've ever seen. One of the most beautiful movies that I've ever seen. Amazing to see it at the Arrow. Incredible movie. You can refer to Noah's episode about that movie on My Favorite Podcast. Yeah, baby. For more information about that. That is not what we will be talking about. Then about half the people left after the movie. Damn. Which I'm sure just would have upset Paul if he had been there. They left and then uh, the projectionist kind of took a little moment to get things situated for Sabrina. Uh, It's obviously an older print. Um, he was just seemed to be having a few technical difficulties, but then it started. And for the first at least half an hour, maybe even longer, I was enjoying it, but I was confused as to why Paul Thomas Anderson selected it as the follow-up to Punch Strong Love for this evening. I didn't really see much of the connecting tissue, I guess. It seemed to be much more cynical which is definitely in line with Billy Wilder's filmography and his oeuvre and what he, how he approaches his stories and his characters. Uh, but then eventually, I started to pick up the pieces and kind of figure out, oh, okay, now I see it. Yes, they're both love stories, uh, but as I said, the way that Sabrina opens is not really at all like Punch Drunk Love. Would you agree? Yes, and I want to stop you right there. And I never want you to speak on this show ever again. No, I'm just kidding. I just want to hear from Mason and myself first before we really dive into the movie. Because if you didn't catch on, that's sort of how we do things around here, around these parts. Okay? Dustin? (laughs) Okay? Mason? What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Uh, What's up? What's up? I did find a soundboard with that sound on it, and I almost played it, but the sound clip was so long that it would not have been good for the show. It actually would have sucked really bad. Um, Was it the whole commercial? It basically was the whole commercial, yeah. Funny. Uh, What's your history with Sabrina and Billy Wilder? Uh, This is the first time watching Sabrina by Billy, uh, directed by Billy Wilder. I think that this was one of the first, like movies that I categorized in my dumb little boy head as like a girl movie, yeah, you know, dude. um, because it, uh, just for, for without sight unseen, sight unseen. Uh, so that's just kind of how it existed in my head for a long time. Um, I love Billy Wilder, but I'm really for only familiar with like the ones that Dustin ate, uh, T, uh, rattled off the dome there. Like sunset Boulevard was huge for me as a kid. I love that movie in high school. Um, Ace in the Hole, uh, when I watched that in college was also big for me. Love the apartment, uh, so, so much. Double Indemnity, trying to go off the top here. Um, Some Like It Hot. Some Like It Hot, yeah, Some Like It Hot, absolutely. Um, and I liked how he, how Billy Wilder, the thing for me with Billy Wilder was that he was, like, kind of the best at, uh, doing, um, any genre that he tried, basically. Like, when I still thought about it that way, like, I was like, oh, like, Sunset Boulevard's a great noir, uh, same with Double Indemnity, and it's like, oh, the the the, the apartment's this like really like drama com or however you want to say it, like tragic com- 
come however you're going to categorize the apartment. It's a lovely movie. Um, and I thought that that was really cool that it, like a, a direct, like, that's what a director's career was. It was just like kind of finding those, those similar, those small elements that were between them. But I kind of phased out of that Billy Wilder thing when I started to watch a lot of other just movies and go in different directions with like my kind of watching and stuff. And I forgot to come back around to uh, Sabrina. I can't remember the last time that I watched a Billy Wilder movie even. So I kind of forgot how they moved and just felt and coming back to and watching Sabrina for the first time this afternoon. Um, it was so sweet. It was so charming. And it kind of also just did feel like this big, like kind of welcome hug. Like, yes, you are safe in the hands of Billy Wilder here. Just just relax and enjoy. Enjoy your two hours. Um, that's the sort of short of it, I suppose. Noah, give us your truth on, on Mr. Billy, Billy Wilder, Miss Sabrina here. Yeah. Yeah. So Sabrina, the Sabrina, the, the movie, Sabrina, uh, the, the, the geriatric movie, um, never seen it. Didn't really even know anything about it other than that. Audrey Hepburn was in it. Like our friend Dustin T said, uh, I can't even tell you if I've seen an Audrey Hepburn movie. Because I've never seen Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm. I've never seen Roman Holiday all the way through. I've seen parts. Uh, so I can't tell you if I've actually seen it or seen a Audrey Hepburn film like from start to finish. And I don't even know... Like To me, it's, um, it's wild that Audrey Hepburn is like an icon in today's world, or at least was like an icon for a lot of people. Because, I don't know. I, do these people know who Audrey Hepburn is, or have they just seen the still from Breakfast at Tiffany's and they're like, "Oh, she's cute." Like, I just—it's weird to me that she's this like icon a little bit, at least in present day. I don't know. Well, you could probably do a whole different podcast episode. I'm just going to assume that I'm allowed to talk again. You're allowed I'm, to talk. Just, I was I was just fucking around, dude. Come on now. I'm Come on now. In since I've been double shunned now, um, that's sort of something that warrants its own discussion: is how celebrity the idea of celebrity ages and warps and something that maybe we'll talk about with Humphrey Bogart, uh, that maybe I'll bring up. Uh, but, uh, just so you know, you can go and see both Sabrina and Roman holiday at the new Beverly next month because they're doing a double feature of those two movies, but I don't really Uh, like Roman holiday. So there you go. What the hell? Wait, are they actually doing that? Yeah. You didn't notice. I mean, I guess I, I guess I did and then didn't think about it because I'm like, Oh, I have to watch Sabrina for the show. So I was never going to go see the double feature at that because point. Noah never watches movie more than once unless it's to... punched on glove no it's one of the weirdest things you've ever said in my whole life <laughs> it's one of, one of the most fucked up things uh Billy Wilder is someone I really enjoy and I had seen some of the big ones uh Double Indemnity I think was the first one because they actually showed it to us at film school uh watched mm-hmm. it in the Felino theater at Dodge College of Film Media Arts and I was shocked how much I liked it because I'm not really that big of a noir guy, as I've said on the show before. And I'm not one to probably have sought it out if I hadn't. And I was shocked at how much I liked it and how, even though at that point it was what, you know, it's from 1944 and it was probably 2016 or 2017 when I watched it. I was surprised how fresh it feels. And that's how I feel about watching Billy Wilder films that all that I've seen, including Sabrina, is how fresh and not old they feel outside of certain cultural and societal things that are of their time. The movies themselves don't feel old, and I think that's really what I like They're about They're not, like, movies. dusty, like some... Like some, <laughs> like some guests. They're like, some, like some guests in the chat. They're not hey, dusty. Oh, yeah! They're not dusty, like our friend Dustin. I've um, never heard that one before. 
You haven't? That's awesome. Then I'm glad we did it for the first time. Uh, and so I watched Sunset Boulevard and The Apartment as well. I think I really need to watch, rewatch The Apartment because I watched it just in my college apartment and I remember being a little distracted and not fully appreciating it for what it is. I think if I watch it again, that might be a NM all-timer. Uh, and Sunset Boulevard, I actually rewatched really recently because they did it at the Academy Museum uh, in the Ted Man Theater downstairs. And that was the first time I'd seen that movie since college as well. And it's breathtaking. It's unbelievable. It feels so alive and so just special. Like I, that movie, the fact that, that movie exists is amazing. It's kind of a miracle. It's so good. And by the time this episode actually comes out, I will have seen at least Some Like It Hot, which I have never seen before, actually. I've never seen Some Like It Hot because they're doing it at the New Beverly. And by the time this episode comes out, I will have seen it. And if I'm feeling adventurous, I will stay for the double feature, which is Avanti! Exclamation point, which is a one of his last movies that he made in the early 70s. So I'm a fan of the man, but I had never seen Sabrina before. And I can say with full confidence, I love this movie. <laughs> and Mason, you want to say it now, too? I love this movie. And Dustin, you want to say it for the for the third time in a row? I love this movie. Let's go. Let's go. This movie is awesome. It didn't yeah. disappoint at all. It's great. Yeah. The I I love that you pointed out the aliveness that Billy Wilder movies make you feel because I felt that way watching this too. That it's just I'm watching. Uh, like every single character and just uh, it, it, at the very least, all the characters on screen feel like alive and that we've like entered into um, this own, this nice little like kind of universe or whatever, this kind of slightly off kilter. That's the thing that I really like about Bill, Billy Wilder movies is they are like slightly off kilter from what we recognize. I love just that, that shot of, I think it's David entering the Larrabee building and we see just the first plaque and then yeah, you pull out so and amazing. it's the wall of plaques. And then you see the name, the building's just the Larrabee building too. Um, it just makes it fit the, the, the whole movie just feel like so simultaneously like alive and, and contained in its own way. Um, this movie rocks, Dustin. <laughs> well, I'm glad that both of you enjoyed it that much. What uh yeah. what what do you think the reason is that PTA paired it with PDL? So as I said, the beginning seems just way more cynical and kind of like we're here to laugh at these characters, but not in the same way that we laugh at Barry in Punch Drunk Love. Uh and so with Punch Drunk Love, Barry and Lena are two people who, if you, I'm assuming you've watched the movie audience, but just in case, not really major spoilers, but I'm going to talk about these two people. Uh, if you were to view them in the real world, separately from each other, you would probably say, oh, wow, that's a shame. They're probably never going to find someone else for them they're just kind of stumbling around and you feel a little bit sorry for them maybe even you laugh at them but they look lost and then they find each other and then it's the greatest thing ever right Mm -hmm. with sabrina the titular character the protagonist who we're following who we see right away is kind of at the beginning of the film, I don't know if she's specifically like 
maybe 19 like a teenager still or if she's just a young adult but regardless she's head over heels for the wrong guy for David Larrabee who is just kind of a dunce an asshole there's nothing about him that... he's a true fail son like the per- textbook definition of a fail son yes and so the beginning is kind of like the audience wanting I mean she tries to kill herself I guess his first she mm-hmm realizes that he's never going to look at her and so she tries to kill herself because she thinks there's no reason to live that's how much she's in love with this guy who we don't like uh and then humphrey bogart's character uh linus finds her in the garage and stops her from killing herself sort of somewhat by accident and then it pivots to the two of them falling in love but the way that that starts at the beginning, it's because it's cynical. Linus is trying to save the family business. He's trying to get David to marry someone else for profit and for empire building. And so this whole time I'm watching this and feeling like just this very cynical vibe and that we're laughing for different reasons than Punch Drunk Love at the beginning. But then it becomes, we learn a little bit more about Linus And so then I realized that it is similar in that these are two people, Sabrina and Linus, who we think from being introduced to them, they're probably never going to find their soulmate. Linus, we learn, has already been married and that ended tragically. And now he's just kind of sworn himself to business, to making money. And not even for the sense of, like he literally talks about this, not even for the sense of just becoming richer, but because that's all that there is to do for him. He's just sort of built up walls in his mind, and this is the thing that he's sworn to do as a family member, as a Larrabee family member, especially since his younger brother doesn't seem to care and is a bit of an idiot. And Sabrina is someone who also has built up walls because only the only person she sees is David at the beginning. And she tries to kill herself, and that's tragic, but then something changes... And then even though there are things about these characters that we may not support or like at different times, ultimately they are people who at the beginning we couldn't have imagined them finding somebody, and yet they do. That's kind of that's an interesting read, and I don't a hundred percent agree with part of it. I agree with a lot of it, but I don't a hundred percent agree with part of it. Because I guess the entire time I was watching the movie. I kind of did want her to end up with William Holden's character, David. Although I started to realize, oh, that's probably not the best situation, but that's who she truly loves. And it was going to be sort of that, like, bathos situation where you don't know whether to laugh or cry for Linus. Because clearly that is, like, the more, like, the better person that she should be with, but she'll never end up with him. So I found it very surprising how this movie sort of resolves itself with the epic conclusion, which maybe we want to say, maybe we don't, maybe we want to venture into the spoiler zone, or not. But I, I, I think it, that's an interesting read on it, and I am there with you for part of it, and I'm not there with you for part of it because I was like, oh, she's gonna just, she's gonna end up with this guy, you know, because of how everything's like going, but then we're gonna feel so bad for the Humphrey Bogart character at the end. Not knowing anything about this, the plot of this movie. But that's the Billy Wilderness of it, is that 
that's not what happens. You know, it it, it does surprise you in the end. It surprised me genuinely. What about you, Mace? Absolutely. Uh, I was, um, well, here's what I really like about, I guess, just the structure and construction of the movie, which is you kind of have the core trio being, um, Audrey Hepburn as Sabrina, uh, uh, Humphrey Bargard as Linus and William Holden as, um, David, uh, 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 David. I kept wanting to call him Bill, but that's just cause that's what, you know. Bill Holden, whatever. Um, and you start like Dustin, like Dustin says, with with this this uh, uh, to an audience, like you have this kind of like fairy tale set up, and you're getting put in this like kind of like old money New York setting. Um, and then it's not quite undercut, but there is just like that little bit of like cynicism or melancholy, which is that there's this but- there's this grand estate where they have this big party every year and someone on there of course is miserable and it's the chauffeur's daughter who has a crush on the young son um and can't have him uh and then she goes off more or less against her will to Paris and over the course of 2 years in 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 the movie and the setup there she blossoms she becomes herself and then she returns and gets the attention of William Holden William's Holden's character who is being, um, you know, sort of married away to someone that the family deems more appropriate. Um, and there's like this really interesting as you as the movie goes on, there's this like kind of really interesting, I guess, uh, conflict that comes up there where it's William Holden's character has this history of marrying people like Sabrina and now um, uh, uh, or women like Sabrina and leaving them. And now that he has, you know, maybe the quote unquote perfect version for him. Plans has been made for him, but it's also in his characterization that he's kind of a uh, 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 loose with his time, I guess, doesn't really take his responsibilities to the company seriously. Um, And Humphrey Bogart's character is all business all the time and probably needs to have a little bit of love in his life. Um, At the same time, you know, I I think Sabrina's journey brings her to a point where she's learning that maybe she doesn't just want to be in the schoolgirl kind of love with it, with her. And as I'm watching this, I'm just mostly like, just kind of caught up in how these characters and what they want is changing each sort of scene by scene and how they're interacting with each other in these really interesting and elegant ways that um, I was kind of, like, hopeful that the movie would end the way that it ended. Um, But I was certainly prepared for that to not be the case. Um, And it just makes you feel... uh, It just made me feel so just, like, delighted and and surprised in a way. And it's delighted and surprised, even. Like, maybe kind of contradicting feelings that I'm having at the same time there. But it just is... There's this kind of, like... Billy Wilderness, which is just like that that kind of like laser sort of like precision and focus on on these characters and just and maybe it's like his magic touch working with the actors in particular or something, but just doing such good work to find these these characters um and uh bringing you all, like just just how their interactions their relationships like kind of overlap and stuff like that um really 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 surprised and and delighted delighted me um and that's kind of how i feel about it you know it's, it's such a surprising delightful and just lovely little movie and i wonder if as i get older like my thoughts on the ending would 
would change, you know, like I kind of like that it has this the kind of stuffy all business kind of guy, uh, how his story ends up and how, you know, William Holden kind of steps up to the plate at the end of the movie, too. Um, and the other little character moments, like even the dad gets his fun little like kind of side scenes and, and there's all these little like kind of just appreciation for the people that populate the sides of this movie and this in this world here. The ensemble is really, really lovely. The ensemble is really great. Lovely. And I got to give a Zevon to Walter Hampton, who plays Oliver Larrabee, the patriarch of the Larrabee house. He's so mm-hmm. fucking good in this. He, like his time on screen is not plentiful, but every single time he's on screen, he's either making me laugh or making me excited in some way. So yeah. Zevon to Walter Hampton, who didn't really do a lot major else he did do some stuff but this was also one of his last movies i think he passed away like a year or two after this movie came out and i especially love that moment uh in the movie i guess i'll give a zevon to this moment as well i don't know why this isn't like in those like cnn shows when they're talking about 1950s movies where the wife doesn't want him to smoke and he's like of course i'm not gonna smoke anymore and then he just turns around and there's he's got the cigar behind his back he's like i'm gonna go inside to make sure everything's going okay and he's in there smoking with the rest of his business associates it's just so funny there's so much good just like blocking and framing in this movie too, which is like you think in a movie you take that that it's blocked and framed digitally for granted, but no, like just how these scenes all just like play out and in the movement within it is it's it's so remarkable. And it's not yeah, as was, te- I'm sorry, Dustin, oh, go for it. Well, I was just I want to take advantage of this perfect segue because both of what you just said is something that I want to highlight in one particular scene where he's they're in the office, the high rise office. And he's trying to get an olive out of a jar into his glass Mm. for his drink. Mm -hmm. And he's struggling and he can't get it out. And I can't remember specifically what discussion is happening uh, on the side for this, but we're watching him fiddle around. And then eventually uh, he tries to uh, get it out using, uh, he's using a knife, I think. And then eventually he just decides, okay, I'm going to make my drink out of the, Olive glass. Yeah. And so then I'm thinking, okay, the joke is that now once he pours the drink into the glass, that's when the olive is going to come out and maybe right. he'll choke on it or something. But then that doesn't happen. And so I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of surprising. I thought that there was clearly a joke being set up here. Little did I know, fast forward a little bit to the very end of the scene, and Humphrey Bogart's character just takes it and smashes it. <laughs> Which is just, again, like a great example of Billy Wilder surprising you and kind of tricking you into thinking that you thought something was going to happen and then something even funnier and more absurd happens. Yeah, you think you you know where he's going and then he pulls the rug out from under you and you land in like a ball pit and your friend Mason's there and you say, want to hang out in this ball pit? And Mason says, I actually have so much work to do today. It's not even funny how much work I have to do today. I can't hang out. And I'm like, well, why don't you stop flapping your gums and get out of here, stay in the ball pit, shit or get off the pot, Mason? And he goes, fine, I can spend five minutes in the ball pit. And then seriously, Noah, I have to get out. And I say, we can do everything. Everything I want in five minutes. <laughs> and that is as specific that is a, a reference <laughs> as you could get. It's such a scarily accurate <laughs> read. Uh, yeah. He's speechless. Yeah. I am speechless, actually. Once again, once again, <laughs> I have left Mason speechless on our own show. Happens every single week. Can't believe it. Ha- I can't believe I can't believe the witch, the frequency it happens. Um, 
it's interesting because of the other uh, Billy Wilders that I've seen, this feels the least technically complex of the movies of his, which I've seen. Mm-hmm. And it feels like maybe textbook Wilder in the sense of like what I read, which is script and, and performances, that's what matters. That's what audiences are coming to see. Everything else is in support of that. He like very much vehemently was against, quote unquote, flashy photography and flashy camera moves because he felt that they were mm-hmm. distracting to what is most important, which is telling a story. And if I had to put myself in a particular camp, definitely Noah of like early film school and pre-film school would have been in that camp 110%. I would have been like, that's exactly right. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to tell the story in the most effective and interesting way possible. I think I'm a little bit not as full sail on that camp now. I think I see the other end of it's like, well, that's why you get to make it as a movie and that you should take advantage of those camera tricks and those editing tricks and really use all the elements at play here. But with the exception of like, some really painterly shots in the compound or the compound in the family Larrabee house, especially those tennis court shots, which are drop dead gorgeous. That's what sticks out to me. It's pretty basic in terms of coverage and the technical aspects. They're really letting the things play out in the frame. Yeah. But I think even with that, like, how he uses particularly like the, the like window panes and square like kind of frames within frames to characterize particularly Linus and how rigid his like sort of world and experience is 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 that and there's like one shot in particular in this movie that really was striking to me and that's when Linus makes the um makes the the plastic hammock with hammock with the seat the, yes. the hole in the seat for for his brother to sit in and there's that shot behind where you're from behind with William Holden but through the plastic and seeing his like kind of expression oh yeah the change. warmthness and it, yeah and in the moment like I'm watching that I'm like oh like this is just sh- like this is showing that this guy is um you, you know this that this guy is experiencing a change of some kind internally like um, I think that I like, I'm a hundred percent on Billy Wilder with that one, you know, with that particular, it's gotta be character and performance. Like, I think you can, you know, certainly have, you know, Im- impressive oneers in a movie or something like that. But I just think that like, you know, it, the goal of like why you have a camera to capture like a scene of two actors talking is to do the things that those two actors can't do over just like dialogue in there, you know? performance obviously that's what you're capturing but just you can't have that scene like that like kind of that shot i think i'll get to the point that i think that you know that that's the extra element that's what filmmaking is bringing bringing to it but i think that you could perform this this script as easily as like a stage play or something like that um which is like when you get to the bare bones of it like when you were seeing movies in their proper context or at least not even like that thinking but like at nice in 1950 something or other uh when this movie was made you know like it's a little more i think casual like kind of just like just in the social sense that you could go to a play and see a new original play or go to a movie and it's kind of the same room basically you know like you're in a dark place with a lot of other people you can kind of flip around with it but in the most basic sense you are trying to see you are in a dark room trying to just see other people and characters and, and however you're going to do it or like other performances or whatever 
just just interact and happen happen in front of you. Um, and the most pleasurable like kind of experiences for that is when I think that I'm when I feel like I'm enjoying a story and I'm hanging out and just watching interesting people in front of me, basically. Um, and style is kind of second to that, I guess. But there can certainly be style and supportive characters, I guess. Um, Dustin, do you come down one way or the other on the style versus character or the style versus character and story? Do you think that it's kind of all the same thing or, or what are your what do you feel about that? Well, I guess it should be mentioned that this you're talking about the stage play uh, part and this film was adapted from a stage play. Okay. Okay. So it makes sense, uh, especially when you look at the locations and how they're used, like the uh, Le Cordon Bleu, the French kitchen kind of feels like literally it's, it's a set from a theatrical stage as opposed Mm -hmm. to you're actually in France. And that makes sense because obviously they didn't go to France just for that. But something about that scene in particular, um, as well as the office, I would argue kind of feel like you're in a theater, not a movie theater watching a movie like I was, but like you're there in a performance theater, watching a play, um, the way those sets are designed, um, just kind of give that vibe to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe that's just me. Um, but I guess I'll take advantage now to say one of the things that uh, PTA mentioned before the movie, he was basically kind of riddling off some IMDB like fun facts. Let's go baby. Uh, and mm-hmm. one of them, cause he said that this was something that he watched. Paul's fast fact. Yeah, I was Paul's about to say, he, took a, he was, must be listening to this show <laughs> and getting him figuring out where to get his facts from. Yeah. And he knows he wants to impress Noah. So, uh, <laughs> he, the, he said that he watched this in preparation for licorice pizza, um, that Billy Wilder's surprise, surprise, a major inspiration. Um, but apparently for this particular movie, uh, Billy Wilder was kind of pulling a Godard before Godard was even making movies and was writing scenes uh, the morning of type situation. Yeah, that's pretty insane. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he would tell the cinematographer, uh, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, um, to light very high key, basically, um, and to kind of uh, create a very specific mood basically giving him more work to do so that he could finish writing during the day very sneaky 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 yes very sneaky and i think from other stories that you can find about Billy wilder uh he's just sort of maybe a little bit of a sneaky asshole guy Uh, (laughs) but also one of the best directors ever so there's that um I believe the name I you're looking for is Charles Lang Jr. for the cinematographer. Charles Lang Jr., who I'm not sure how many other films he did with Billy Wilder, but this one is pretty great. Pretty great looking. Um, I think for style and substance, uh, I'm most interested in how a director can be a chameleon, and I think that, honestly, Billy Wilder was. Yeah. He was uh, the he, he was the goaded with the sauce, chameleon-wise. I mean, comparing mm-hmm. a film like this or going a step further with Double Indemnity, uh, which is obviously it has the noir uh, tinge to it, so that's going to affect things a little bit more than this, which is not a noir. Um, But also Sunset Boulevard uh, look pretty darn different from Some Like It Hot. Mm -hmm. So I think it really depends on your source material and what you want to do with that, Uh, but there can be inspirations that maybe come 
out of the blue um, that you just ride with. Uh, and as a result, uh, it may end up looking kind of flashy. But if you're truly in the zone with whatever story you're trying to tell, then I think that you can, can get away with that. Uh, again, it just really depends on what kind of story you're telling. Uh, but I think both of you are kind of already touching on that. Yeah, it's, you know, like you were saying, Mason and Dustin, that idea of the the play, the stage versus the screen, you know, you have one frame when you're in the theater, when you're in an auditorium watching a play, and that's the proscenium that you're watching. With a movie, the frame changes. That is, like, by definition, that is the that is the main difference between stage and screen in that respect is the frame you can change the frame you can change your perspective you can change the angle all that good stuff you can change the size of the shot it's those elements that make film unique and that combine all those other elements like film to me that what i love so much about it ultimately at the end of the day is that it kind of is every other art form Mm -hmm. combined into one it's Drawing and painting with, you know, how things are framed. Those were the ori- those were the original one perfect shot, motherfuckers, was drawing mm-hmm. and painting. Uh, it's dance with choreography and blocking and the way the camera moves is part of that as well. It's obviously photography. It's obviously acting, you know, and there's music in there. It's like every other art form combined into one and using what we know from those other art forms to best tell the story. And that is why I that's why I say pre film school no and early film school no but 100% the Billy Wilder camp. And that's why I say to myself I'm not like sticking in that camp although I that is my main focus and what I really want when I'm watching a movie as well. It is those other things, those aesthetic choices in filmmaking whether it's post production or with the camera or whatever that make those films come alive. So the reason why our favorite movies work the way they do is cuz they could only be movies. And although Sabrina is based on a stage play, it's hard for me to imagine it feeling as interesting on stage as it does with what Billy Wilder does behind the camera. And that is why he is goaded with the sauce chameleon yeah. style. Well, they even remade it in the 90s with Harrison Ford, and that movie does not have a particularly sunny reputation. I want to double check who directed that because I'm sure it's, I, I remember it being somebody insane. Hold yeah, I was well, actually I curious about that too, who directed that one. Kind of going maybe towards the end Sydney of this. Pollack. Oh, it's Sydney Pollack. That's wow. it. Which, you know, he's made some good movies, but it did not do well, and it did not do what they wanted it to do at the box office. Harrison Ford, Julia Ormond, and Greg Kinnear are your three. Greg Kinnear plays the William Holden character? Yeah. Interesting. I don't actually, I actually don't think that's a bad parallel for the 90s, to be honest with you. I think that's actually pretty good casting. Something I want to talk about uh, just finally on, on what we were previously discussing was uh, something that I'm going to steal from another incredible director. I was not in the room for this. He did a Q&A, uh, but I heard about it afterwards. It's Barry Jenkins talking about each time he's framing up a shot, he thinks about what it's not. He thinks about what the shot currently is, and he thinks about what it could be. That's awesome. And that is his thinking process on set in the moment. And I think kind of represents uh, what I was talking about earlier. And I mean, each different person is going to can use that, but then come up with something different based on whatever the source material is. That is, And then I think it was in our 
not the last episode we did with Sonny Mason, but the episode we did where we talked about Alex Cameron and Ocean's Twelve, where Sonny said, mm-hmm. "If you if you want if if uh, someone who's not into film asks what does a director do, you talk about Soderbergh making remaking Solaris." That was what Sonny yeah. had said, and I thought that was a very interesting comment. You know, I I I never thought about it like that. I've never seen either version of Solaris as of now. But it is interesting, yeah, Tarkovsky is making his version of Solaris and then he fucking remakes it in 2002 with Clooney, who's basically at the height of his powers at that point. And more or less, he Soderbergh is at the height of his powers as well. And apparently it's different enough, but more or less the same. It's the same material just remade. Um, it's just interesting that, that that's that's how Sonny framed it. And you, know, and you put a different person behind the camera for Sabrina, some other 50s director who's maybe not thinking uh, as globally or as, you know, altruistically and holistically about this, maybe it doesn't work as well. Maybe you get, you know, maybe it just doesn't because we have three great actors in our leads with William Holden, Humphrey Bogart, and Bogart and Audrey Hepburn. But maybe this movie doesn't sing the way that it does if, if, if you know, if Billy Wilder's not behind the camera. And I have to imagine that's the case. Um, what do we think about Humphrey Bogart as this character? I love him. I love him too, but it was surprising to me how much I loved him. I was like, that kind of seems like a wild... It seems like one of these things is not like the other in terms of William Holden and Audrey Hepburn, but it works on screen together, as we'll later find out. It didn't work off screen as well, but it's it's kind of a big swing, I feel like, actually, to put Humphrey Bogart in that role, but it works, I think. This is something that I, th- I was going to, what I was kind of referencing earlier as far as like how people view him today, because I certainly know from being in the room with other people watching this uh, and just my own reaction, when he kisses her first and says to keep things in the family, that's major gross. Yep, and it's nasty. People reacted accordingly uh, based on that. In, in the room and it made me think about you know ultimately uh the the love story between these two people i'm don't quote me on whatever their actual ages were uh, at the time but i think there's something maybe about humphrey bogart today where people are kind of like gross white dude and not how it was back then which is he for one whatever reason he was a sex symbol a-list celebrity fantastic actor but also just like people audiences loved him and it wasn't crazy to imagine him being the love interest of Audrey Hepburn despite the age difference and so I don't think that age differences are necessarily viewed as completely negative maybe slightly more negative and slightly more abnormal than they were back then but it is I think a ballsy choice in terms of today's thinking uh, on this movie to have him be the person that ultimately we'll fe- we feel sympathy for and ultimately the person that Sabrina falls in love with. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the context mm-hmm. on that of, yeah, in the 50s, it was probably like, oh, that's the fucking man, that's that's Humphrey Bogart. You know, like, we love that fucker. <laughs> we love that fucking guy. But today, you know, if you, if you didn't like Licorice Pizza's age gap, you might not be a fan of the age gap going on here uh, in Sabrina. So, wee-woo, uh, wee-woo alert on that one for some folks. But, uh, yeah, it is kind of weird today to see it. But it didn't bother me enough to be like, fuck this. Like, I'm genuinely invested 
in this love it's a love triangle it's a weird love triangle it's a very under the radar love triangle but it's a love triangle and those are always interesting i think absolutely i agree and mason agrees is there anything else we should say we are going long and hard on this one so is there any any final thoughts on uh, i just wanted, i don't think we I don't think we shouted out specifically William Holden as David, but I think he's really, really funny in this. Yeah, he's excellent. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You you did shout him out earlier. Oh. We're doing it again. You can shout him out again. Yeah, double shouts to double shouts to old Billy H out there. Billy H and Billy Dubs. Back in the back in the New York groove. Also a connection to Licorice Pizza in that William Holden was Jack Holden, yeah. 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 Jack Holden, yeah. Yeah, classic. And he's having he's having some fun with Alana, Alana Kane in that one uh, as well, too. So interesting how everything that old is new again <laughs> in some ways. Uh, I, that's, I, I do have a, quite a bit of fast facts. Uh, I might be skipping some on the fly, so very cool for me. Sabrina, Sabrina Fair or La Vie Rose in the United Kingdom is a 1954 American rom-com. Directed by Billy Wilder, adapted for the screen by Wilder, Samuel A. Taylor, who wrote the original play, and Ernest Lehman. Another interesting connection, I watched Sweet Smell of Success for the first time, which is based on an Ernest Lehman something or other. Hell yeah. And that movie's pretty damn excellent as well. Seeing that for the that first time. That movie's Rip City. It's pretty fucking good. Pretty fucking good. Uh, it stars Bogart, Hepburn, and Holden, as we said. This was Wilder's last film, released by Paramount, ending a 12-year business relationship between him and the company. I guess that was the norm back then in the old studio system days, which we love. The film was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry and Library of Congress in 2002. Happy 20-year anniversary to that. There have been multiple Indian adaptations of the film. Mana Panthal in 1961 was a Tamil version, followed in the same year by a Delugu version. And I apologize in advance for this one. Intiki Deepam Ilale, Ilail? I'm not 100% sure. In addition, Sabrina was the inspiration for the Hindi film Ye Dilagi, 1994, although there were some changes to the plot, as well as, of course, the Hollywood remake with Harrison Ford in 1995. Humphrey Bogart was a last-minute replacement for Cary Grant. He was supposed mm-hmm. to be the man in this movie, which makes more sense, I think, possibly, in terms yeah. of the initial idealization of who this guy is. And then it says here, supposedly Grant rejected the part because he did not want to carry an umbrella on screen, which, what the fuck does that mean? What does that even mean? You don't want to carry an umbrella what on is, screen. What's with Europeans and being so precious about their umbrellas? We only get it out when it's foggy London town, mate. Vogart <laughs> uh, I guess William he wouldn't Mo- have done singing in the rain either. Uh, he would have actually, he would have ripped his skin off if you had to hear about singing. There's a movie where I got to have an umbrella and it's raining. Fuck that. He would have said that. And singing. And I'm singing. And singing about how it's raining. Yeah, he would have probably ended his life right there. Uh, Bogart and William Holden couldn't stand each other. Bogart disapproved of Hepburn. He wanted Lauren Bacall in the role instead. Surprise, surprise. Uh, while Holden fell in love with her off screen as well. Bogart got 300000 Holden got 150000 And Hepburn only received $15,000, which is insane. insane and not cool. That is bad. <laughs> that is so criminal. That is so insane. Uh, asked how he liked working with Hepburn, Bogart replied, it's okay if you don't mind doing a dozen takes. Yikes! Also bad. Yeah, also not a chill thing to say. Uh, During production, Billy Wilder was continuously working on the script, as Dustin said. One day he asked Hepburn to feign illness 
so he would have enough time to finish a scene. Wilder began shooting before the script was finished, and Lehman was writing all day to complete. Eventually, he would finish a scene in the morning, deliver it during lunch, and they would begin filming it immediately following. This movie was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Director, Best Actress for Hepburn, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Art Direction, Black and White, and Best Costume Design, Black and White, which it won for, of course, the legendary Edith Head. Although there is some controversy surrounding that, most of Hepburn's outfits are have rumored to have been actually created by Hubert de Givenchy, I believe is how you say that, a chosen... Oh, Givenchy? Givenchy, yes. Uh, in a 1974 mm-hmm. interview, Head stated that she was responsible for creating the dresses with inspiration from some Givenchy designs that Hepburn liked, but she made the important changes and the dresses were not Givenchy's. After Head's death, Givenchy stated that Sabrina's iconic black tail... Iconic black cocktail dress was produced at Paramount under head supervision, but claimed it was his design. Little drama there in the costume department. Mm. A little bit of ooey, ooey, ooey. What do we think? What's way in on this old drama that's been put to bed? What do we think? Yeah, that's a little ooey, ooh, ah, ah, ting, ting, walla, walla, bing, bang for me. Yeah. A little ooey, ooh, ah, ah, ting, ting, walla, walla, bing, bang. Dustin, whose side are you on? Edith Head or Givenchy's? Uh, Edith Head. Cool. Yep. Maybe it's Givenchy. I don't know. I knew, Who gives a I shit? Knew it's French. It doesn't matter. Uh, when Linus takes Sabrina to the theater, the play they see is The Seven Year Itch, which was Billy Wilder's next movie. Kind of funny. Kind of cool. Uh, yeah. Paramount considered changing the name of the film to The Chauffeur's Daughter. Terrible. No. Awful. I don't want to see a movie about a so show. I don't want to see a movie about a chauffeur's daughter. I want to see a movie about Sabrina. That's exactly right, dude. The show that's is like such a bad. Time. That one is like the worst idea I've ever heard in my life to change to the chauffeur's daughter. Get out of here with that shit. All right, now some fast facts about Billy Wilder himself. He was born uh, June twenty second, nineteen oh six, and passed away on March twenty seventh, two thousand two. He was an Austrian-American film director, producer, and screenwriter. Uh, spanned five decades. He was nominated for Academy Award for Best Director eight times, winning twice, and screenplay 13 times, winning three. That is so insane. Go him. After writing as a crime and sports reporter as a stringer for local newspapers back in Europe, he was eventually offered a regular job at a Berlin tabloid. He develops an interest in film and works as a screenwriter. From 1929 to 1933, he produced 12 German films. And as Adolf Hitler rose to power, he went to Paris, where he makes his directorial debut film, Mauvaise Grein, I believe is how you say that. Probably not. And then he relocated to Hollywood prior to its release. He continued to work as a screenwriter. He became a naturalized citizen in 1939 and wrote Ninochka with fellow German immigrant Ernst Lubitsch. Stars Greta Garbo. Everyone's like, that's crazy. The film marked Wilder's first Academy Award nomination, which he shared with Charles Brackett. Wilder's directorial choices, as I said before, reflected his belief in the primacy of writing. He avoided, especially in the second half of his career, the exuberant cinematography of people like Hitchcock and Wells, because in Wilder's opinion, shots that called attention to themselves would distract the audience from the story. In total, he directed 14 different actors to Oscar-nominated performances. Think about that. I mean, I know the man made like quite a bit of film, but 14 different actors were nominated mm. for Oscars in movies that he is credited as the director on. That's kind of insane to think about. One of those unbeatable uh, records, so to speak. I would maybe, think so. Maybe, maybe the best to ever do it. Possibly. I mean, I think you could make that argument. Two final facts. Wilder opposed the House Un-American Activities Committee, also known as HUAC, 
He co-created the Committee for the First Amendment of 500 Hollywood personalities and stars to support those professionals called upon to testify before the HUAC committee who had classified themselves as hostile with regard to interrogations and the interrogators. Some anti-communists wanted those in the cinema industry to take the oaths of allegiance. The Screen Directors Guild had a vote by show of hands. Only two people opposed, one being Wilder. Do you guys have a wager a guess on who the other one was? Edith had. Only in the, these are the directors only. Oh, only directors. Uh, who is it? Dustin, any guesses before I reveal? No, but I feel like I'm gonna go. Oh, uh, of course. As soon as you do it. Drum roll, please. John Houston. Only other person to, oh, yo. to raise yeah. to raise up and say no thanks. Houston yeah, said. Sense. I'm sure it was one of the bravest thing that Billy, as a naturalized German, had ever done. There were 150 to 200 directors at this meeting, and here Billy and I sat alone with our hands raised in protest against the loyalty oath. Wilder was not affected by the blacklist, and he said, of the Hollywood 10, of the 10, two had talent, the rest were just unfriendly. And that is so brutal and mean, I can't even begin to think the balls you have to have to say that about. You're literally your... Bella, like Dalton Trumbo's in there, for God's sakes. Yeah. Like, that's nuts. Uh, and last but not least, he died of pneumonia on March 27th, 2002, buried at Pierce Brothers Westwood Village Memorial Park and Mortuary. And, of course, he had to go out with a bang. His headstone reads, Billy Wilder, I'm a writer. But then, nobody's perfect, which is just so <laughs> fucking good. <laughs> Dustin, who, what, which Mercedes Valuable player do you recommend, Sabrina? Uh, maybe it's a little bit weird since she is the star and also the plays the titular character, but Audrey Hepburn, uh, because I think that she's doing a lot of heavy lifting, but in a subtle way, just with her facial expressions that only she can give. I think that there's complexity, or at least I am interpreting complexity within how the character of Sabrina is navigating this crazy situation and how she's feeling at different times. And I think that that is always uh, superbly conveyed uh, by Audrey Hepburn. So even though she's a star, that's who my Mercedes Valuable player goes to. And do you recommend this one? Yes, I do recommend this movie. Oh, Mason, same to you. Uh, I think I'm actually going to give mine to, to old Bogey himself. I think this is one of my favorite performances of his that I've seen just because he's it's I think there's a characteristic of his performances that I can like bring to mind right now where there is a little bit of like um, uh, uh, he's kind of hiding his true emotions, I guess, in a given scene. Like he's either playing tough and is like excited or, or scared or um, uh, uh, or like, you know, he's just withholding like the love that he has at the for uh, Ingrid Bergman at the end of, of Casablanca for like the greater good or whatever. And in this one, it's nice to see him play a little like a guy who's like all business, but lets his like kind of tender side come through with even his brother who he may not have gotten along with off screen, but certainly with, with Sabrina and just how watching that, how he, he changes over time with that. I was really, I really enjoyed it. Uh full recommend for me. This is, this is an awesome, awesome movie. I'm really glad that I finally got around to, to taking it off the list and, and watching it. So thank you, chef dusty pop off the list. And I would say if it's not on your list, put it on your list. Full recommend from Noe M over here in the top right corner of the Zoom. And I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to cheat on my Mercedes Valuable Player because I want to try and give it to as many people as I possibly can. So it's going to be a co-Mercedes Valuable Player. 
And the way in which I'm going to do that is very obviously so that I can give everyone I want the recognition. So I'm going to give it to the main cast as my first recipient of the Mercedes Bible Player, which includes Audrey Hepburn, Humphrey Bogart, and William Holden. And then my co-Mercedes Bible Player is going to be the people who wrote the script, Billy Wilder, Sam A. Taylor, and Ernest Lehman. Those who, the guys and the gals who get my Mercedes Bible Player for this, with Wilder, it's always about that script. He's so good at plotting, which to me is, you know, dialogue is dialogue. Good dialogue is very, very good, and bad dialogue is very, very bad. But to me, that's not what makes a script good. To me, what makes a script good in a lot of the ways is that type plotting. And he was a master at it. I can't, it's hard for me to think of people in that same level of his. There are, and they're not coming to mind right now. So it's got to be the script, and it's got to be those core three performances. Full recommend from me. And I can't believe it, but we finally finished the show after what was... (laughs) just an insane way to start we have landed the plane on top of burning water i would say and we have finished the show Mm -hmm. dustin thank you for being our first guest all the way back in 2019 and thank you for being our last guest in 2022 this is the reason you came on the show is to plug your shit so please plug away the floor is yours uh, don't you remember? I already did this at the beginning of the show. I threw it. Of course, I don't remember. It's two and a half fucking hours ago. Of course, I don't uh, remember. Check out my my show with uh, Eddie Snowden coming soon to, yeah, to show streaming time. service that no one uses near you. Perfect. Great. Then, in that case, you can, listen, you can send us a good email at everybody wants to the number two. Get on the list at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at it's on the list pod and it's on underscore the list. You can follow me there as well. You can listen to my other show, my favorite podcast, which is on hiatus, but it's a show about people's favorite things. Check out the back catalog. Check out Dustin's appearance on that show, episode 39. We talk about his favorite music festival and his experience at Sasquatch Music Festival, the now defunct music festival up in the Washington area, Washington State. And as well, because we mentioned it, because he was uh, mentioned earlier, check out episode 49 with Maya Lucia, where we talk about Carrie and Lowell, the uh, Sufjan Stevens album from 2015. And he didn't leak it for me like he said he would, but by when this episode drops, a new Talks Hard single will be out as well called Oxycontin. Go support the Talks Hards. Go support our friend Alan Macchiarolo. Go support those boys. I'll be seeing them live at Borders at LaBelle. So go check that out. That's all I got. Mason, bring us home. You can find me on The Barn, a podcast about The Shield. You can find me on Letterboxd under my name on Twitter and Instagram at HotDogDebicki, where the link in the description at both of those places is my merch store, and you can uh, support the manifesto. All beer should be $1. I had a great time, actually, last Wednesday at a dollar beer night uh, event for Sleeping Village. Got to see Alex Grell, who performs around Chicago as Grelly Duvall. It's like fun little like kind of drag sort of classic Hollywood mix. Uh, keep an eye out for that. If you're going to be in Chicago, hopefully he's coming around. Or just go to Dollar Beer Night. Support Dollar Beer Night uh, in your hometown and elsewhere. Uh, what else do I have to plug? Uh, I think I will just end the show now by saying, as we always do, tell someone you love them this week. Do something you love this week. We'll see you all next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uninterrupted. <laughs>